Welcome to the Orville City Council meeting of April 20th, 2021, where we are reconvening from closed session where direction was given and no action was taken. Uh, we are calling this meeting to order. Stand with me for the Pledge of Allegiance, please. Salute. Pledge. Looking for a motion to adopt the agenda. I move that we adopt the agenda. All, all second. Motion carries with seven yeses and zero noes. Mr. Mayor. Due to time constraints, uh, I'd like to adjust the presentations, if I could, please, and move the unfunded pension liability presentation from NHA advisors to the top. They have another commitment this evening in Chico. Okay. Let's hear from the unfunded pension liability presentation. Oh, it's going to be online. <laughs> yeah, we need them. Number three. <coughs> who is our Ruth? Who is our presenter? Eric. Could you introduce Eric real quick? Could you introduce Eric real quick? Can you please come to the podium so we can hear you? Good evening, Council. Um, we have a presentation tonight from NHA Advisors. They're going to give us a, a quick rundown on our uh, unfunded liability, our CalPERS unfunded liability. So they have a quick presentation for you. And if you have any questions, you can ask them at that time. Thank you. Hello, welcome. Good evening, uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, members of the City Council and uh, City of Oroville staff. My name is Eric Scriven I'm with NHA Advisors. Uh, my colleague, Mike Meyer, uh, and I will uh, jointly um, present uh, we think is a pretty uh, uh, short presentation, pretty high level on the unfunded liability with CalPERS that the City has. I also have my uh, colleague, Leslie Bloom, who will be listening in as well. Um, we anticipate that if there's any questions, please just jump right in. Uh, we don't need to wait until the end. We've got 14 pages of content here. The idea was to just present the background, um, what, you know, how uh, the city uh, got the payment that it has and the liability that it has and some of the uh, potential uh, options on restructuring that uh, will be presented um, with the idea of just uh, finding out if city council wants to understand and evaluate it further. There's no decisions really beyond that. 
Um, we, NHA Advisors has worked with the city of Auroraville in, in the past. We assisted on the refinancing of the tax allocation bonds. Um, we're financial consultants and uh, municipal advisors. Our job is not to uh, sort of push or pull uh, the city, city council into any uh, decisions or actions. Our job is to present facts um, and uh, we've done some due diligence based on your CalPERS reports and uh, basic knowledge of what's going on out in the, in the marketplace and a little bit of diligence on what the city has done in the past uh, to present this 14-page uh, uh, presentation to council. I think uh, we can bring it up, but I think that the idea was for the city clerk to uh, bring it up. Is that uh, correct, Ruth, or should we uh, try to find it and bring it up? Uh, Ruth had stated that you guys would have it available. Okay, let's uh, Mike, do you have it handy? Let's get it into slide mode, I guess, a slideshow. It should be, let me uh, try one other. <clears throat> Should we work with that? It looks fine to me. Does it look fine, uh, Mr. Mayor? Okay, let's go with that. Let's just uh, move through. I know you're on a, you've got a full agenda. We wanna be concise and uh, give you uh, the information um, that we have. Page two. You know, uh, the right side is cut off with you guys on the screen. So if you could, there you go. Thank you. Okay. Um, as you know, uh, the, the city of Oroville has a uh, large pension liability. You're not alone. Every uh, public agency in the state that is with CalPERS has a um, pretty large liability. For many, it's the largest uh liability on your balance sheet, your general fund balance sheet for sure. Uh, your liability is composed of, uh, uh, it's total of 27.7 million composed of a $24.9 million unfunded liability with CalPERS, plus you have a outstanding balance of $2.8 million uh, on your 2007 pension obligation bond that you issued. Uh, the UAL has increased markedly over the last uh, seven years, uh, doubled in fact, uh, from 12 million to about 24, 25 million. This has been primarily because of CalPERS uh, changing its assumptions. Uh, one, of, one of the biggest impacts has been that CalPERS has lowered its discount rate from, I believe it was eight, uh, eight and a quarter or maybe eight and a half, seven, seven, eight years ago, and they recently uh, dropped it down. They were they uh, incrementally dropped it down, and last year came down to rest at a 7.00% discount rate, and that, that uh, serves to increase the amount that they uh, 
show the city uh, has on its books uh, as a liability. Along with this liability, uh, the payments uh, for the city to CalPERS to repay this uh, liability, this unfunded liability, have increased as well. Uh, they've increased markedly. Um, just like uh, most of the other cities and public agencies in the state of California, this, uh, this liability um, and the payment to extinguish it has been putting pressure on other uh, priorities. Uh, and as we'll show you in the next slide or two, uh, it's a very irregular repayment schedule that CalPERS has established to repay this uh, liability. We think, uh, and we, we speak with a lot of uh, public agencies, primarily cities in the state of California, creating and discussing evaluating uh, a CalPERS pension funding plan with the full array of options is extremely important for your the city's uh, fiscal sustainability to meet uh, the needs and prior priorities of the community. Uh, we're going to do a quick synopsis on uh, past and present uh, uh, cost management strat strategies, which include uh, an annual uh, prepayment on your uh, unfunded liability uh, payment, uh, cost sharing, migration of PEPRO workforce, uh, Section 115, additional discretionary payments that the city can and in fact has made to CalPERS, as well as uh, restructuring uh, the unfunded liability through a, a bond. Um, that latter uh, strategy, uh, given the complexity uh, put and the potential risks, um, which are sig potentially significant, uh, we're going to focus on that towards the latter uh, part of this uh, presentation. Just a little background, the, the city does have two uh, primary plans. You have your miscellaneous uh, plan that covers 133 members, which uh, of which 52 are active, and you have your safety plan, uh, which has 104 covered members and 35 uh, are active employees. Uh, there's two parts to each of these plans. You have your classic uh, um, uh, members uh, that were hired prior to 2013, and you have your newer hires that are covered under the PEPRO plan, which is a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a less uh, uh, costly um, retirement program. Uh, over time, the PEPRO plans will be helpful in managing the long-term pension costs. However, the unfunded liability, that $25 million unfunded liability that the city has, 99% of that unfunded liability is attributable to the classic um, members, the uh, retired and 52 active members. And uh, that, uh, that will not really Im be impacted by the PEPRO reform. So that is a liability that is on the city's books and needs to be addressed. Any questions? Okay. Let's move along. Okay, um, so uh, as many of you may be aware, the city makes two payments each year uh, to CalPERS. The first payment, uh, which is called the normal cost, is uh, the annual cost for current employees. The second payment that is made is the 
unfund the payment on the unfunded accrued liability, the UAL, which is what we're speaking of today, the $25 million figure. And that is essentially uh, what the actuaries at CalPERS um, believe the overall liability uh, of the city to make payments over the next 30 or 40 years to its retirees, uh, less the amount of money that the city of Oroville has on account with CalPERS uh, in, its, uh, in its account, which uh, the total liability uh, that CalPERS uh, fixes uh, is 85.3 million. There's 59.6 million of actual market value assets with CalPERS, leaving an unfunded liability of $25.6 million. That, uh, excuse me, that payment, I mean, that amount is really the focus of this whole presentation. And uh, uh, CalPERS has established uh, a repayment schedule for that. As you'll see on the next page, it's really uh, an amalgamation of uh, a bunch of uh, uh, what we call amortization bases. Uh, and those bases uh, vary from four years to 29 years. And as you can see, as they layer on, as CalPERS layers these on over the past 10 and 15 years, you can see that it's created a very irregular repayment shape. So this, the blue bars here represent the CalPERS payments, the unfunded liability uh, uh, debt payment schedule to CalPERS. And as you can see uh, uh, from 2015 to now, it has ascended uh, very steeply and it's gonna continue to ascend through the next 10 or 11 years and before it peaks and then uh, uh, starts to descend on the backside. Uh, for many public agencies, this irregular payment shape uh, is a very difficult payment uh, uh, repayment schedule to manage around. Uh, you know, every year you have an increasing payment to CalPERS uh, that you uh, either have more revenue to cover or you, it crowds out other potential uh, priorities. Um, the the uh, gray bars, uh, we've depicted these on here as well. That is the repayment on your 2007 uh, pension obligation bond. And that uh, will be retired in the next uh, uh, three years. Um, so that, uh, I mean, that uh, has served to actually uh, as exasperate the, uh, the steepness of this uh, repayment over the last 10 or so years. There are, um, I'm sorry. Uh, many uh, many uh, public agencies in, in the state over the last year uh, to two years have been uh, investigating uh, restructuring uh, the, this repayment shape, this, uh, these blue bars. Uh, it try to create a uh, more level repayment, something that is more predictable to budget around. And uh, during the last 18 months in particular, uh, as we all know, the interest rates uh, uh, in the municipal market have come down to uh, all-time lows. In fact, uh, in February, we think we saw the uh, bottom of the all-time lows, and we've seen a bit of a trend uh, more recently where the interest rates have been ticking up a little bit. 
I think we can move on. So why are uh, the costs, and why, do, why does the city of Oroville and pretty much every other public agency in the state of California uh, have such a uh, irregular and steep uh, repayment shape? And why has the unfunded liability been growing? Well, to sort of step back a moment, um, 20 years ago, uh, uh, some may remember, CalPERS uh, in the late 90s and uh, right around 2000 was earning double-digit returns. Uh, and because of that, the retirement systems for many, if not most, of the public agencies in California were what is called super-funded. In essence, the liability to um, um, you know, repay uh, the, I, let me step back, the assets, uh, the assets uh, basically equal the liabilities that the actuaries um, um, calculated. So there was no unfunded liability. Um, so given that uh, back about 20 years ago, many public agencies uh, thought that this was uh, a good opportunity to enhance uh, retirement benefits. So we had uh, the situation where uh, we had great returns and then uh, starting with the state of California, prison guards, as well as the CHP, and then it uh, worked its way through most of the public agencies in the state of California, um, cities and special districts, uh, benefits were enhanced uh, starting in the early 2000s. As we all know, uh, starting with the 2008-2009 Great Recession, uh, we've had uh, sluggish uh, investment returns. Um, the CalPERS has missed uh, its targets uh, more in more years since uh, 2001 than it's uh, hit. And uh, given that, uh, CalPERS has made policy decisions to reduce uh, what it thinks it's going to earn. It used to expect to return eight and a quarter percent. And as I mentioned earlier, they've ratcheted down their expectations for reinvestment returns down to 7%. And, and as we, uh, we know, CalPERS is meeting later this year uh, and with the idea that they're gonna review this and there is a chance that they may reduce this 7% figure down even further. Uh, along with uh, the discount returns and reinvestment, lower reinvestment returns, the, uh, there have been other changes in CalPERS assumptions where they've changed uh, the mortality rates. For example, people are living longer. They changed uh, uh, the valuation process from a, a sort of smoothing actuarial valuation to uh, an annual uh, check on the market. So, you know, actual real market valuation. In addition, they've uh, decided that they want their money sooner. So instead of allowing public agencies to repay their unfunded liability over a 30-year uh, period, CalPERS wants their money uh, over a 20-year period, which has uh, greatly increased the repayment, uh, annual repayment on that, that unfunded liability. So the unfunded liabilities uh, really are still growing. They're going to be growing. Uh, they have grown over the last seven years and they're expected to grow uh, uh, over the next uh, 10, 10 or 11 years.
Well, what has the city of uh, Oroville been doing to, to manage these costs? Uh, the annual cost, um, you know, the, the payment that you're making on this unfunded liability of CalPERS. <clears throat> One thing that CalPERS offers is the ability to uh, repay or prepay, <clears throat> I, sh I should say, uh, its annual unfunded liability payment. Uh, at, if it pays uh, in the month of July, CalPERS will allow a 3.4% discount on that payment. <clears throat> and the city has used this, uh, this option uh, over the past number of years. In addition, the, the city, uh, like most public agencies, uh, uh, in the early 2000s, this uh, city of Oroville uh, used to pay for the employee's side of these payments um, and uh, would would basically pay the city, excuse me, the city side and the employee side. Since the early 2000s, the city of Oroville, just like most public agencies in the state of California, have through collective bargaining uh, negotiated for the employees to cover their side of the, uh, the unfunded liability annual payment. Number three, <clears throat> there is an option uh, that CalPERS offers it's called the Fresh Start Amortization uh, with CalPERS. And uh, in essence, uh, this is something that CalPERS uh, allows public agencies to do where they can take that regular repayment uh, schedule that we showed on the previous page that has the, the big hump and reschedule that uh, payment into a more predictable and level uh, payments, uh, payments. Uh, the caveat with that uh, uh, program that CalPERS offers is that they want the, the public agency uh, that is going to utilize this fresh start to uh, make that uh, repayment over a shorter period than what they uh, currently have. So typically uh, what we see, uh, like Oroville, Oroville has a repayment schedule that goes out to 2045 or 2046. And... Uh, the, the, the terms of the fresh start would be that uh, the city would need to use a 15 or 20 year repayment, which uh, the bottom line is would increase your near term payments uh, over, the, over the next uh, five, five or so years. And uh, most of your savings, if not all of the savings would be uh, found on the back end when you pay off the uh, liability over the 15 or 20 year term. CalPERS on the Fresh Start program uses the same discount rate, the 7% discount rate. So that's also a uh, what we think is a con to, to the program. The final thing that I would say is the con to the program uh, with Fresh Start and is the primary reason uh, among those that I just mentioned uh, why it hasn't been a popular program um, by public agencies uh, in the state is that once you lock in the fresh start, uh, there's no flexibility to go back to uh, the payment shape that you had prior to electing the fresh start. So number four, um, if a city is fortunate enough to have cash reserves, uh, there's a couple of primary strategies that are utilized. And I'm happy to say that uh, the city of Oroville has been one of those cities that has been utilizing these strategies. The first is to establish uh, what, what is called a Section 115 trust, 
which in essence is a restricted fund that the city can deposit monies in. Those uh, monies, once deposited into a Section 115 trust, can be invested in uh, you know uh, strategic investments uh, from very aggressive to more conservative and presumably can uh, earn more than you would be earning in your normal um, um, accounts like LAFE. And, and, and the benefit of uh, putting money into a Section 115 trust, as I said, is these are restricted accounts so that they can be used uh, and only uh, used for pension and OPEB uses. So to the extent that you have uh, monies in those accounts, uh, you can use those funds to uh, smooth out future payments. If you've got uh, a spike in, in PERS payments or you have some revenue shortfalls in future years, those Section 115 trust funds can be utilized to, uh, uh, in essence, uh, buy a little time, smooth out by paying, uh, smooth out that uh, that cost by paying the CalPERS unfunded liability or the normal cost in a year that you may be a little short and you need time to uh, budget around that. Uh, the Section 115 trust, there's, uh, CalPERS does offer the ability to invest in a Section 115, and there are other third-party providers of these uh, uh, trust uh, um, um, products. Uh, PARS, Keenan, and PFM, among others, uh, offer these and, uh, and a variety of investment choices for the uh, Section 115. The, the second uh, way that uh, uh, the city uh, can utilize extra cash is to make uh, direct payments to CalPERS, which uh, are uh, called the uh, Additional Discretionary Payments, ADPs. And again, I'm happy to say that uh, the city of Oroville has uh, utilized uh, with uh, excess cash strategic uh, uh, prepayments uh, on its uh, unfunded liability over the last two years. There's been a um, million dollars in each of the last two fiscal years that have been deployed to uh, pay down uh, some of the unfunded liability that you carry with CalPERS. The last item that we're gonna uh, delve into um, that many uh, public agencies are looking at uh, these days um, mainly because interest rates are so low, is the opportunity to uh, refinance and restructure your unfunded liability with CalPERS. Eric, and, yeah. Eric if I could just interrupt for a moment. <laughs> Councilman Pittman has a question. Yeah, Eric, the, uh, yes. the city's investment plan does it have the same restrictions on investment policy as PERS does? Uh, great question. It depends who your provider is. It's almost like a 401k. Um, the provider uh, is going to give you options from conservative to aggressive. Uh, but you, I think your question is, are you limited um, to... Uh, you know, certain investment vehicles um, based on your investment policy that you have with your other funds? Is that is that more to the point of your question? Well, more to the point is PERS has investments the state legislature won't allow them to invest in. Oh, yeah, right. 
No, you have, uh, that's, that's one of the primary reasons that uh, uh, public agencies set up the 115 uh, trusts is to diversify uh, away from CalPERS and some of their uh, requirements, um, the, depending on which uh, uh, firm or fund that you work with, uh, you have uh, you don't have those same um, um, restrictions. Some of which are uh, political, I assume, but uh, I assume that's part of what the question is. But yeah, there's flexibility in these funds, uh, and I don't believe uh, um, that uh, there's any restrictions. I think the position right now, Councilman Pittman, that the city has taken on this is we invested at a moderate conservative level. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that, but one of the reasons we're in this mess is the legislature is controlling what PERS invests in or not invests in. Consequently, the low rate of return has been the result of that direction from the legislature. Am I correct in that assumption? <laughs> um, you're, that's a slippery slope for, uh, for, for me. I think that they are putting restrictions on their investment, the investment portfolio, and to the extent uh, that that constrains uh, optimal performance, uh, you would be correct. Um, you know, CalPERS is having a great year this year, um, but uh, as we all know, they've underperformed uh, more years than we would care to count uh, over the last 20 years. And uh, that's why they've lowered their discount and why we believe, I think many believe that they're um, looking at uh, uh, perhaps lowering it a little bit more uh, in the not too distant future. Thank you, sir. So we're gonna uh, jump, keep moving forward. Uh, for the most part, the rest of this presentation uh, relates to a high level discussion about the uh, re refinancing and restructuring of the uh, unfunded liability. And just again, uh, we are a, a municipal advisor and financial consultant. We're providing information for uh, city council to think about and decide if you want to uh, learn more. That's our agenda for this evening. I think I'm going to hand the next page. I hand it over to my colleague, Mike Meyer. Thanks, Eric. And good evening, Mayor, Council members, um, Mike Meyer with NHA. I'm going to start in here on slide eight. Just a little bit more about the concept of restructuring. Um, this entails uh, an agency issuing debt um, or a bond and using that money that's raised to pay off uh, some or all of its UAL with CalPERS. Uh, so it's essentially converting the 7% CalPERS debt into uh, lower interest rate uh, bond debt. The typical structure, the legal structure that is typically used is uh, what's known as a pension obligation bond or a POB. This is something that the city uh, has utilized in the past back in 2007. Uh, it is unsecured debt, so there is no collateral uh, that's required. Um, tip for, for most agencies who have not done POBs in the past, you do have to go through a court validation process that takes anywhere from three to four months, uh, a little bit longer during COVID uh, is what we've seen. But uh, the city 
if this is something that the city were to explore down the road, it, it's highly likely that uh, you would not need to go through that process just because you, you likely did it uh, 13 years ago. Um, as Eric mentioned, this is a uh, this market has become more active in the last, I'd say, 12 to 18 months because we've seen uh, a resurgence in investor interest in, in purchasing these bonds from uh, local agencies as well as historically uh, low interest rates. So there's been about 45 uh, agencies, I think, in the last 12 months, uh, not, mostly cities, uh, totaling about $4 billion that have restructured their UAL. The, the interest rates on those bonds have, have ranged from about 2.54. That was the uh, February 2021 transaction that Eric mentioned, which may have been the bottom of the market, up to about 4%. Uh, for some agencies. Um, the last five cities or so that have issued POBs in 2021 have all been uh, around or a little below the 3% uh, mark. In, it, in addition to a lower interest rate, um, one of the big benefits is really having a, a, a clean slate to really uh, put into place a repayment shape that's a bit more predictable and smooth um, uh, for, for, for enhanced future fiscal sustainability. There are risks with any POB, and that is uh, reinvestment risk by CalPERS. So essentially savings is, it's not guaranteed. It's dependent on CalPERS future returns, and we'll get into uh, a little bit more detail on those risks in a couple of slides. And so just starting uh, kind of graphically and, and, and conceptually with the restructuring idea before uh, turning the page to look at some of the numbers behind this chart. The uh, chart here on slide nine uh, is, is the bars are essentially the same bars you saw in the previous slide. So these are the payments that the city is currently scheduled to pay. So in the gray bars there, uh, top left, those are your last three payments on the 2007 POB. Uh, in the light blue bars, those are your uh, scheduled UAL payments. Uh, again, that, that rise until about 2035 before uh, dropping off. And so just to get, um, just to really give you a high level idea of what a restructuring could look like, we just, um, we analyzed three scenarios. So in the orange line, that is a 25 year uh, restructuring. The uh, navy blue line in the middle there is a 20 year uh, restructuring. And then in the green line, we had one that uh, escalates at 1% and then it starts to decline in the back end. And, and this is just to give you an idea that um, if this were a concept that the city uh, explored down the road further, there are, there are literally dozens and dozens of options in terms of the size uh, as well as the shape of repayment that you can look at. A lot of cities have, have chosen to uh, just restructure a small portion of the UAL, so something under 50%. A lot of cities have um, taken advantage of low rates and converted the whole thing or 100%. So um, the potential savings really is uh, in those first 15 years, if you're looking at this chart, it's really the difference between the top of the bars and the new payments, which are shown in the line. And so um, 
with these three scenarios uh, over the first 15 years, that that cash flow savings we estimate to be between nine and a half and 13 million, depending on the option. Obviously, the longer the term, uh, the lower your annual payment, meaning there's more cash flow savings in the first 15 years, although there are extra payments uh, on the back end. The uh, savings metrics behind that chart or are shown here on slide 10. Uh, moving from left to right, just based on the uh, term of the option. So uh, the, the shortest 20 years on the left in Navy, and then the longest uh, in orange, the 25 year. For, for all of these options, um, just kind of as a baseline, we did assume a partial funding of the UAL, so not 100%, uh, but an amount that would bring your funded ratio to about the mid 90s, which is uh, Kind of a, a, a nice target area, uh, talking to a lot of actuaries. The interest rates that uh, we assume for the restructuring are, uh, I'd say, slightly conservative for the current market, but they're shown there in the middle row around the 3.5% mark. And then the uh, potential savings on a present value basis is shown a couple lines below, uh, ranging from about 55 to uh, $6 and then on a, a cash flow basis, those potential savings are shown on the bottom three rows. And that's where you'll see a noticeable difference in uh, these options, because as you go out uh, to the longer one in orange, you can see that that really maximizes the savings in the first 15 years. So about 13 million of savings. Uh, but because you are adding some payments to the back end, it does bring down your cumulative savings to uh, around 3.3 million. And on the flip side, if you look at the shortest option, the 20 year, uh, the cumulative savings are 6.9 million, uh, so higher than the 25 year, uh, but you do have less savings over the next 15 years because you are uh, making uh, annual payments at a higher level. On an annual basis, that's shown in the bottom uh, row there. The estimated savings for uh, these three options ranges from about five hundred and seventy-five thousand up to uh, eight hundred and seventy-three thousand. I will note that all these savings do assume that uh, Calpers does earn seven percent uh, into the future. So moving. To slide 11, I think some of the benefits uh, probably, um, you know, have been communicated already through those charts, obviously reshaping the debt at a lower level uh, in a more predictable way uh, helps with budgeting, uh, helps with uh, future fiscal sustainability, and, and also resiliency, uh, really the ability to absorb uh, future economic shocks. So if CalPERS does have some down years, in the future and, and layers in more unfunded liability, um, having a lower repayment shape does give you more capacity to absorb uh, those shocks. So I really wanna focus on the right side of the chart here on slide 11, which is the primary risk of any uh, UAL restructuring, which is reinvestment and market timing risk, which really means that savings is ultimately dependent on future CalPERS uh, returns, which are unknown at the time of issuance. 
And so said a different way, it, it, it really means that the city is better off, um, let's say it, it issues a 25-year pension bond, uh, as long as CalPERS earns above what you are paying on that bond over that 25 years, you, uh, the city is better off having done the bond. But if CalPERS does not earn above the pension bond rate, then the city is actually worse off having done that pension bond. And that's a fairly simplistic way of looking at it. Um, but that is, that is probably the, probably the simp simplest way to communicate that. Um, it's also why we, uh, in all of these restructuring projects that we've worked on, we highly recommend a stress testing process, which really means that, um, you know, it's very easy to look at the savings that we just showed on the previous page, which assumes CalPERS earn 7%. Uh, but what we think is important is to make some more pessimistic assumptions and then look at uh, what type of situation the city would be facing with and without a pension bond. Um, some of the scenarios we've been using with other agencies are, you know, what if CalPERS only earns 5% over the next 25 years instead of 7 uh, what if there's another 2000-like recession, you know, starting in 2023? Um, what then does it look like for uh, for the agency? So, flip. We have a Mike, couple more slides. Mike, can oh. I inter interrupt here for a minute? About how much longer do you think we have? Several presentations. Let's we have uh, three more slides. Okay. I, uh, we'll we'll speed it up. So I appreciate that. Um, slide 12, just a couple unique things I mentioned for Oroville. Um, court validation was likely already done in 2007. So if this was something the city wished to explore, uh, that would likely not be needed. Um, we have several agencies that also issued pension bonds uh, anywhere from 04 to 07, which was right before the Great Recession. So um, probably not the best market timing for those pension bonds, but from what we've seen, uh, most of those agencies were still better off uh, having done those bonds. That's something that an actuary could calculate if the city were ever uh, interested. Uh, I think I'm going to skip this slide or maybe turn it to you, Eric, to talk a little bit about the uh, I, probably the one remaining item we haven't covered, which is the pension funding policy. Yeah, I think I'm going to go rapidly through this and just state uh, if the city council is uh, interested in this idea, uh, it take we we strongly advocate that it, there's a a strong education process. Um, there's stress testing involved, as Mike discussed, and whether you do a transaction or not, there there this should be uh, the vehicle and the process. Uh, where a pension funding policy is crafted and adopted so that you create a roadmap um, to address this challenge. Keep going. I think that this reiterates, uh, it's, it's, it's a very complex uh, uh, process to understand and it takes time and, uh, uh, and patience to make sure that city council who makes the decisions, staff and, com and the community understand uh, the background and, and the options before 
the city uh, council makes a decision uh, for or against doing something like this. Last page. This is really uh, the, the point of this presentation. If the city council is interested in uh, looking at this, uh, this idea further, uh, the, the workshops could be scheduled. You know, in fact, we strongly uh, advocate that you, you do uh, more. It takes time to uh, gather all the information and uh, if the city council is strongly uh, interested in this, uh, then directing staff and consultant to uh, investigate whether a validation is required or not would be some of the things that the council could direct. And that concludes our presentation. Sorry we went a little longer than I thought, but uh, um, that's it. Are there any questions from this council? <laughs> Do I have any questions from the public? Mr. Mayor, I do not have any blue speaker cards or anyone raising their hand on this item. Okay, Eric, Mike, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. It. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. You want to go back in order? Yes, sir. Okay, behavior, behavioral health presentation please. Mr. Mayor we have Mr. Scott Kenley from the Butte County Behavioral Health Department will give us a presentation on the behavioral health uh, program and uh, the impacts that homelessness are having on that. Good evening Mr. Mayor, Council Members. Um, will I have a PowerPoint yeah. clicker or is someone else going to do it? There you go. There you go. Okay, that's fine too. Where do you point it at? All right, thank you. Um, uh, Matt, you have an adjustment for that screen to get that out of our field, please. Thank you. There you go. Ready? Great. Yes, I'm Scott Canelli. I'm the director for Behavioral Health. Thank you for having me tonight. Um, I was asked to come and talk about behavioral health services, uh, our funding, uh, what kind of things we do uh, in Butte County, some of the uh, programs we have, and then the intersection between behavioral health and the homeless, uh, mentally ill population, which has been quite a source of discussion uh, if you're on social media or you're listening to the news. Next slide, please. So who are we? Um, Butte County Behavioral Health is primarily a treatment provider. We serve um, the Butte County population, the indigent population, or uh, people with Butte County Medi-Cal who are seriously mentally ill, as well as people who have substance use disorder uh, issues in Butte County. We serve the seriously mentally ill, and it's important to distinguish this, uh, and I'll, I'll get to it in a little bit, but serious mental illness is a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder resulting in serious functional impairment. Uh, which substantially interferes with someone's life. And by that, it, uh, I mean, if you're seriously mentally ill, you have significant issues, could have significant issues in any of the, uh, the following things. Your socialization, your ability to interact with other people, uh, your housing is typically at high risk. A lot of seriously mentally ill people lose their housing or uh, are evicted from housing facilities. Um, 
employment. Typically, there's unemployment issues that, that come with serious mental illness, as well as academic um, problem, problems, uh, typically with kids. They fall out, drop out of school. They go to special ed programs. Or in adulthood, it's difficult to obtain college education uh, unless you're treated. Um, our services are mostly voluntary and include a, a continuum of care. Prevention services, which are early intervention services, we do those in the schools and um, for our outreach programs. Our actual treatment programs in outpatient, which is voluntary. Our substance use disorder services. And then on the tail end, when we have people who are doing well, uh, our wellness services on the back end, typically provided at wellness centers. We do operate inpatient services, which is when someone needs to be psychiatrically hospitalized in a hospital. Um, we have a 16-bed inpatient unit in Butte County called a PUF, Psychiatric Health Facility, PHF, uh, which serves both people who are voluntarily uh, wanting services, but primarily it's uh, involuntary um, hospitalizations. We are governed and overseen by CMS, which is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services at the federal government level, and DHCS, which is the Department of Health Care Services, which is the state. Next slide, please. May I ask a quick question? Sure. You said a 16-bed facility in this county. Is that for the entire county? That's it. That's the only psychiatric inpatient facility in the county. Is that adequate? Not at all. And we'll get to that in the, in the Thank PowerPoint. You. appreciate and that. does that serve young people or only adults? Only adults, 18 and above. I have a question. Sure. The, um, and I, I grew up here, and we, we never, well, we didn't see the uh, mental illness like we do now. I mean, you can drive down most streets and see at least one or two people that are hallucinating and that. Do you, do you have any idea what the uptick in that is? What? Yes, and we're going to get to that as part of the slide presentation. Okay. So it might be probably best if, if you want to hold your questions and I can answer them because a lot of this is, is going to be answered. Okay. Thanks, sir. Uh, Councilman Goodson. Thank you. And this is just in, in regards to what you had stated with that PUF, there's 16 beds. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there not um, an adult facility in Oroville and also in Chico? There is a privately operated inpatient facility through Enlo Behavioral Health. It's a 32-bed facility for people with private insurance and Medicare. Uh, their average census, however, is typically six to eight clients. So they're right. not typically full. And there is no psychiatric inpatient in Oroville. All right, thank you. We do operate a crisis residential program, which is a non-locked um, facility for people who are either right about to be hospitalized or coming out of hospitals who are considered at risk, and they can stay in that facility uh, typically for 30 to 45 days. It, and I mentioned it is voluntary, and it's a resource that we utilize. It's on our, in our Chico campus as well, but it's not a hospital. Okay, thank you. So as far as behavioral health services and health care services in general in the county, it's a very complex system of care. And uh, for our clients on Medi-Cal, it's very confusing in some cases. We have two health plans that govern the health services in Butte County. It's California Health and Wellness and Anthem Blue Cross. And they are responsible for the physical health care for people with Medi-Cal. But they are also responsible for what they call the mild to moderately mentally ill population. And as I mentioned earlier, serious mental illness is our responsibility. Someone with a mild to moderate mental illness is someone who's experiencing some anxiety. They maybe have low-grade depression. They have some panic attacks, some phobias. Maybe they're struggling with self-esteem issues, things like that. It impacts their lifestyle, but it's not dramatically crippling sometimes where they have to be <laughs> psychiatrically hospitalized, they lose their jobs, or they're losing their employment, or they can't go to school. So people are human, and they move through different stages of their life. Sometimes someone can be mild to moderately impacted, and then some major life crisis happens, campfire, COVID-19, and they cycle into the sev severe world. 
we pick them up, we provide services. Sometimes people that we serve get better, well, most of the time they do, and they go into the mild to moderate network. So there, there is movement between those two um, uh, worlds. As far as drug and alcohol services go, Butte County Behavioral Health uh, provides all the drug and alcohol services to Medi-Cal um, clients, either through our own county uh, services or contracts we have. One thing we do not provide and is frequently misunderstood is uh, medical detox services, which means if someone's coming off a major street drug and they are at risk of dying, overdosing, having seizures, heart attacks, they typically have to get medically detoxed by a, a medical professional. Not behavioral health is actually only allowed to be provided in one place for the state at an acute care hospital. So Enloe Hospital, Orville Hospital, Orchard Hospital, things like that. So there is a lot of confusion where people are like, why aren't you taking these people off the street, detoxing them, and then serving them? And we'll get into some of the other issues in a little bit. Next slide, please. Some of Butte County's characteristics is, uh, I'll talk to you, we, we serve the indigent, who are people who are suffering from extreme poverty or have no connection to social services. We, we actually employ eligibility workers through the Department of Social Services, and we embed them in our programs so that if someone comes in without insurance, we get them signed up for Medi-Cal uh, because one of the primary drivers of our funding is we bill the state and federal government, and we receive reimbursement for it. So behavioral health gets a budget, but in order to fully be whole, we have to be able to provide treatment and reimbursement. By state and federal mandate, we're not responsible to provide treatment to anyone from out of county except for two reasons. A foster youth who gets placed in our county in a group home or a foster uh, kinship program or someone who goes into crisis regardless of their insurance status if you go into crisis it's one of my responsibilities I have to do the crisis intervention and triaging of you to the next level of care either up to a hospital or safety plan you or it's your health care uh, program in general Butte County unemployment rates and Medi-Cal beneficiary rates exceed statewide uh, averages we're considered a poor county and we have 1.4 rates, 1.4 times the rate of poverty in California and 1.5 times the rate in the United States. And unfortunately, Butte County is also well known for having what they call high ACEs, adverse childhood experience scores. And just a little bit about that, that's things that happened to you in childhood that are very negative, that have a significant impact on you throughout your life. Divorce, domestic violence, molest, abuse, poverty, uh, violent neighborhood, those kind of things that, that impact you that then you become stressed by over time. And over time, research, multiple research articles have shown it significantly impacts you and puts you at high risk for mental illness, substance addiction, and significant medical issues. GI distress, um, heart attacks, high blood pressure, all those things. So that's an area in Butte that we're unfortunately well known for, and that contributes to a lot of the people who eventually potentially become homeless or addicted to drugs. Next slide, please. Who do we serve? This is our fiscal year 1920 data. Um, for the year, we served 9,353 people. Um, some of those clients came in more than one time, so they're not distinct um, client counts. Um, there's a breakdown between adult and youth served, uh, the total being seen in mental health and substance use. We serve 1,962 people. In our inpatient, our psychiatric hospitals, uh, we serve 563 people who were hospitalized and placed either in our PUF, uh, 302 of them, or out of county, 475 people. Um, that's important to note because we send a lot of people out of county, and it's a very expensive process to do that. Um, if my preference is the director, and one of the things that I have as a priority is to try and establish psychiatric health services in our county. So we bring, one, the money to our economy, and we reduce the number of people being sent out out of county and, and hospitalized, which can be, hospitalization can be very traumatic, 
particularly for kids. You take a kid, you hospitalize them. Sometimes they're strapped down in an ambulance and driven down to the Bay Area. That's a four-hour-plus drive in an ambulance strapped down if you're violent or you're having an acute psychiatric issue and you can't be safely transported without restraints. Not to mention the impact on the families who have to drive down there and follow their kid. They don't necessarily know what's going on. Crisis services serve 2,104 people. There's a breakdown between adult and youth uh, people who came in or were screened or assessed, either at our walk-in crisis services, our outpatient centers, or the emergency rooms. And we received 6,175 calls last year, um, breakdown between adult and youth. Primarily, our, most of our services are to adult, but there are uh, a number of youth that get served. Next slide, please. Our budget is frequently asked questions. People ask a lot of questions about our budget and seem to think that we have millions of dollars to just throw around at the homeless. So I'm going to dispel some of those rumors for you and show you what we spend money on. Our budget in 1920, I'm going to round up a little bit. It's $74 million. Um, of that budget, it's broken down into six funding categories, which are, for the most part, rather complicated. Realignment funding, Medi-Cal funding, Mental Health Services Act funding, some grant money, very little uh, client insurance reimbursement, and almost zero county maintenance of effort funding that comes from the county. But of that $74 million, we spend in 1920 $14.5 million for housing and placement of our clients, whether it was short-term housing, uh, treatment services, board and cares, uh, skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, Christ residentials, you name it, the whole continuum of care based on what the need is. The remaining money went to treatment and programming, either Butte County uh, employees providing programming or contractors that provided services. Next slide, please. Realignment in a little bit more detail because it's, uh, it's, I think this is an important part if you're talking about the intersection with homelessness. Back in the 60s, the state decided to realign how they provided services to the hospitalized clients who are hospitalized through state hospitals. And they said, we feel like there's a lot of abuses in the hospitals out there in the 60s. A lot of people were being put in hospitals without really appropriate uh, due process. Sometimes someone would report something about their neighbor and all of a sudden they were hospitalized, never to be seen for years and years. Uh, there were abuses happening at the state hospital levels with regards to restraints and how people were treated. Some of those services were very inhumane. So the, st the state said, enough of this. We're going to shut down the majority of the state hospitals. We're going to realign the funding and give it to counties and make it your responsibility. The county said, well, are you going to fund us uh, for these services? They said, absolutely. That wasn't true. They gave us realignment funding, but it was dramatically lower than what they were spending on the psychiatric hospitals at the time. So realignment funding comes from two primary sources, which is state sales tax. We get a little percentage, like a .0-something percent, as well as a percentage of vehicle license fees. When people buy cars, we get a little percentage of that funding. Those funding streams have been up and down over the years, depending on the economy, and um, can be quite volatile sometimes. We are, as a, as a condition of this realignment funding, mandated to provide some services. These are non-negotiable. We have to provide these services first, and everything else is based on resources. Youth services. If any youth comes in with Medi-Cal, we have to serve them. EPSDT means early periodic diagnosis, screening, early periodic screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Drug Medi-Cal services. Anyone who comes in with a drug medic, drug issue, we have to serve them. Uh, drug courts. We fund drug courts that are provided through Butte County. And perinatal services for pregnant or parenting moms who are substance using, we have to provide those. We have one in Chico and one in Orville. Also, all the crisis services that are available, we have to fund those. Any inpatient placements, hospitalizations in county or out uh, are our responsibility. And the last one is NTP, or narcotic treatment providers, uh, Aegis, the methadone treatment provider services. That's a, a contract we have for several million dollars a year. 
Funding for counties dependent on the economy and with reg- without regard for costs or demand for services. So when the economy is going well, we tend to get a little bit more money. People get served. That's great. But when the economy tanks, which it does every once in a while, our funding goes down because we get fewer, uh, less realignment money and other funds. But typically when the economy goes down, stress goes up and people need more help. It's an inverse pattern, um, direction, and so we tend to have more people asking for services when we have less money available. So part of our budgeting process is we have to set aside a little bit of money to ride through those waves where we have, oops, sorry, where we have the economy going down uh, versus having a, a robust series of good years. Next slide, please. Other funding is Medi-Cal, Federal Financial Participation or State General Fund. Just to make that really brief, uh, we use our realignment to provide services and bill for it, and we draw down federal matching funds from the federal government. So if we provide a service and it's appropriate and billed correctly and the state says yes, then we can draw down up to 50% sometimes in in matching funds. there's a lot of restrictions on that funding, and that, this is kind of some of the things that drive people crazy. For example, when they say, why can't you provide drug and alcohol services out in the community to the homeless? Well, state drug medical uh, requirements say you can only provide services to someone who has a drug problem in a certified site that the state has come out and said, I've blessed this building right here. This is a certified site. So homeless mentally ill who are dr- using drugs don't typically want to walk through our door and get services. We want to go out and see them and bring them in. But any service I provide out in the community for a drug addict who has a drug issue, who has Medi-Cal, is unreimbursable. So it's on my dime. It, it, it just It's a cost to me. As well as if someone goes into an inpatient hospital or jail, lockout, Medi-Cal shuts off, and I can't get reimbursed for that. Those are just some of those things about the funding that makes it really difficult for counties to, to operate. But we still try our best to do that. Mental Health Services Act funding is another big funding stream. It's also called the Millionaire's Tax. It's a 1% tax on people earning over a million dollars. I'm not one of them. It would be nice, but um, the people who are making millions of dollars do pay their share. Uh, it's, a, it's a great um, funding stream, but it comes highly regulated as well. It requires a great deal of community input. That's why we have annual stakeholder meetings saying, what do you want to spend us to spend our money on? How do you want us to serve the community? And the community has input, and that drives a lot of it as well as our advisory board. The funds are ironically also subject to reversion. If we don't spend them in a certain period of time, they go back to the state. So there's one piece of MHSA funding called innovation funding, which is highly controversial. That's the state said, you have to do innovative projects. You have to do something that hasn't been done before, that's answering a question. And county said, okay, great, we'll see what we can do. Let's see if we can duplicate that program. Well, the state initially said, no, you can't repeat anything that's been done anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Counties pushed back. They now allow that, but... They require that you take this proposal after you've done community input, after you've gone to the Board of Supervisors and the Advisory Board, and you submit it to the Mental Health Service, MHOSOAC, Mental Health Oversight and Accountability Committee. That committee then reviews it, tells you whether they think it's innovative or not, and can deny it or approve it. Right now, there are 21 projects subject to reversion in the queue for the state right now. We're number 22, and if we don't get that seen by the end of the fiscal year, we, we potentially lose funding. It's one of those things about the state that drives us crazy. Um, and if you haven't noticed, I'm a little candid about what some of our challenges are because I think it's important people know uh, what our strengths and our weaknesses are. The other piece about MHSA is the state several years ago realized that there was a homeless crisis and said, aha, we need to find a funding stream to address homelessness. They took 7% of all the MHSA funding from all the counties right off the top before counties ever saw it and said, guess what, counties? You now have to compete for that 7% money with other counties to establish potential housing projects. So it's called No Place Like Home. We have applied multiple times for No Place Like Home funding and 
so far been successful in a number of projects uh, to get them started, but it's usually one-time money to help seed money to, with low-income developers to get projects on, on underway. The most recent one in Oroville's Pacific West Apartments that, that we just did with the board, but there's several others coming online, like Creekside Place in Chico, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then grant funding comes down. We do get grant funding. It's time limited, lots of strings attached. It's a feast or famine. When you have a grant, it's great, but when the grant runs out, if there's no sustainability, the program goes away. And then lastly, client insurance is primarily collected if someone with private insurance gets seen in crisis. Private insurance companies are notorious for denying payments or saying we're not going to pay you what the cost of your services are. That's something we're trying to get through legislation to have parity so that they actually pay for the services. And all of our services are... um, audited annually or triannually by the state, federal government, and uh, whatever the grantor is. So we get a lot of people coming for days on end, looking at our books, looking at our programs, looking at who we serve. Next, next slide, please. These are some of our clinic locations. We're in the four major areas of Butte County. Um, in addition to those clinics, which are typically youth and adult, we have prevention programs in Chico and Gridley. We also have substance use disorder services in Chico and Oroville, and we'll be adding some in Paradise this year. Um, Embedding co-trained staff in Gridley as well to do substance use or what we call dual diagnosis treatment, mental health and drug and alcohol services together. We fall under what they call NACT, Network Adequacy Requirements by the state that says you have to have a certain number of staff for a certain number of clients, as well as what those circles reflect, time and distance standards that say someone who's living anywhere in Butte County has to be able to get to your clinic within a certain period of time or else you have to open a clinic closer to that person. So we get evaluated on that. Next slide, please. That's what they're coming on. This is just an example of some of the contractors we work with for youth services. Uh, We have vocational services, which is employment services, housing programs, methadone programs, uh, LGBTQ programs, housing um, through chat, um, youth for change, there's a whole, uh, and the Office of Education, among others. Next slide, please. This is a list, uh, it's not inclusive of some of the services we provide through crisis youth services, adult services, and adult substance use services. Um, I know we're short for time, so I'm happy to answer any questions later about those, but it just gives you an idea of some of the programming we have. Next slide, please. Statewide home. Now we get to homelessness. This is the fun part. According to HUD, uh, the statewide HUD data, they estimate 25% of those experiencing homelessness are living with a serious mental illness and 17% with a substance use disorder in the 2019 point-in-time survey. Their, so their survey data is pretty close to our, our, our Butte County data, and I'll show you that in a second, but that does not take into account any of the mild to moderately mentally ill people, only people that have a serious mental illness. So there's definitely more people out there with that. In addition, yes? These are the HUD definitions, which typically are people living in cars, under bridges, living in alleys, or on the streets. It's not reflecting couch surfing people or people are living in, uh, with other people. And that's been one of the challenges, too, is it doesn't really capture all the truly homeless people. So we going, we're, this is just the HUD data I'm providing. So the HUD data also says the vast majority of people are not experiencing behavioral issue when they become homeless. 
Yes, some people do become homeless as, an, as a result of their serious mental illness, but the majority don't. However, the longer they stay homeless, the greater the chance they get traumatized or they experience stressors and they become mentally ill or addicted to substances. So the longer you're homeless, the worse your odds are. The primary risk factor for homelessness is not mental illness, according to HUD, or addiction, but rather old age in California. Um, a recent UC San Francisco study highlighted that over half the homeless today are over the age of 50. And the number of those 65 and over is expected to triple by 2030. That's nine years from now, and that's a rather big wave coming. In California, 72% of the homeless population reported being unsheltered, which we talked about. Um, and as a result of the harsh conditions, uh, a large number of those people are manifesting symptoms that make them look like they're 70 and 80 years old. The, the, the medical conditions that a, a, some, someone in the, that age group are showing up in people in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s. So it's a harsh life. It's, it's having an impact on people, as well as a lot of the homeless aren't getting the medical treatment they need. The UC San Francisco study also highlighted that homelessness is primarily an issue of poverty and housing affordability. It's not surprising to many of you. My biggest push is addiction. Um, it's not getting enough attention. Addiction is a huge issue with the homelessness. Um, Butte County seeing it with fentanyl. Fentanyl's coming up. Mm. It's, it's, it came from the East Coast. It came all the way across, went Southern California, and it's up in Butte County. Highly, highly potent drug that in very small amounts can kill you. And it's being mixed because it's very cheap to get, and you can get it on the Internet, and you can grind it up in a blender and make pills and to look like other types of drugs. Mm. And people take them. They have no idea. One, one, you know, at one point, it's one milligram of fentanyl. One milligram, another time, it's five milligrams. It's Russian roulette for some of these people taking these drugs, and they die. So that is, we see addiction as a major issue for homelessness. Um, and even though that data up there shows you 25% saying serious mental illness and 17 saying substance use disorder, when we get our people in and we finally engage them and, and provide treatment, build a relationship, or we drug test them, it's 60 to 80%. So there's a far higher number than that's being reported. And people say, well, why? Why is the data so wrong? Well, I'm a guy coming out with a clipboard to use, and you're homeless. I'm going to ask you some really personal questions about yourself, including, are you mentally ill? There's a large portion of the mentally ill population who truly don't believe they're mentally ill. It's called anisognosia. They have no insight into their illness. They truly believe that they are the second coming of Jesus Christ or that the government has implanted a microchip in their body and you are crazy for asking them to think otherwise. Or you're going to ask me why I shoot heroin every day. I'm not going to tell you because what are you going to do to me? A lot of addicts have a long history of being treated badly based on the fact that they're addicted. So they underreport or they lie. So that's one of the big pieces that people tend to misunderstand. It's not that people are bad for being addicted. Living on the street, it's very readily available. Um, it used to be you'd go to a dealer, now you can actually start making your own stuff in little two liter bottles uh, with a couple cough drops or the, the pseudoepinephrine. There's lots of home cooked recipes that the homeless share to get access to drugs now that they could do a lot quicker than they, they could in the past. Next slide, please. Our homeless stats, our 2019 point-in-time survey stats, this was for Butte, we surveyed 2,300-plus people. 22% said they had mental illness, a little lower than the state. 12% said they had substance use disorder, also a little lower. Again, our reports and our, our experience is 60 to 80%. 23% disclosed they were homeless for the first time in campfire survivors. 820 of those people had some kind of health insurance, not necessarily getting the help they needed, but they had it. 188 had SSI or disability um, payment of some kind. And the primary cause of homelessness cited at the time was natural disaster. No shock what we've been going through. Fifth was substance use issues, and eighth was physical health and mental health issues. Again, these, the, statistics, the statistics here are only as good as the people reporting them. 
If they're honest, then it's good. If it's not, we have no way of knowing. Next slide, please. So some of the things that we've learned working with the homeless population, we are out there every day throughout the county. I'll talk about those programs. Critical life event we've talked about. We have a large number of foster youth, far too many out there that are homeless, who've exited the system. Domestic violence and runaways are common. Uh, LGBTQI, uh, people who have left their houses or placed the family have kicked them out. They've not had an understanding or supportive family. We have a veteran population that needs help. Criminal justice population, there are definitely lifestyle choice and anti-government people out there who are just, I'm not going to follow rules. And you can't make me, and damn it, I'm going to live in a, in a tent and not, I'm not going to go to the Torah shelter. You, you can't make me do that, and I don't believe in, you know, following any rules. There's also a traumatic brain injury or developmental disability population. Far northern clients who have developmental disabilities or mental impairments, they, there's a large portion of those uh, clients or who could qualify or had qualified in the past uh, out there who are homeless. And then, of course, the mentally ill substance use disorder population, both the mild to moderate, which is the health plan's responsibility, and the severe, which is ours. And do you, do you have the percentage or breakdown of all of those? That's, I don't have them in front of me or with me, but I, there's, depending on which data source you look at, it's all over the board. I know that the point in time uh, survey has data on that because they ask questions, and there's a recent survey that's, been, that's <clears throat> gone out at the Chico City Council, through the Chico City Council and Department of Social Services, where they've just started polling uh, the homeless with questions like this, and they're starting to gather some really good data on it. And some of the Yes, they could say more than one. You could be a veteran who's LGBTQI, for example. Yes. Next slide, please. How do we address homelessness? Behavioral health actually serves more homeless than not. Most of our clients are at risk of homelessness in one way, shape, or form. I'm not going to go through all these programs due to time, but our search teams, for example, are our intensive outreach teams that are primarily field-based. They serve the most severely mentally ill in the, pop, in, the, in the county. Often those clients are conserved in partnership with the uh, public guardian. We fund a half-million-dollar six-street drop-in center for youth through Youth for Change in downtown Chico. We've mm-hmm. established new intensive outreach teams that go out and primarily target people who are not engaged in services, the ones who are frequently in, in front of the law enforcement, arrested, hospitalized, screaming on the side of the streets, as the mayor mentioned, things like that. We do post-hospitalization uh, services through our Crisis Triage Connect program because people are at high risk when they come back from a hospital to falling into homelessness, so we make sure they get connected to services and things like that. We help fund the point-in-time survey. We help fund the continuum of care coordinator. We have our own housing team, our own employment team. We also fund uh, staff in the tourist shelter. Uh, we have a number of other programs uh, that are in there, and you're, you're welcome to ask me questions about that later. Next question, or next slide, please. <coughs> So I sent this a little bit later, and I apologize. There's a list of 131, excuse me, <coughs> 131 facilities. Would you like some water? That would be great. <coughs> Sorry, I'm trying to go fast because I know we're a little bit late. <coughs> There's 131 facilities that we spent $14.5 million on. They're listed and should be available to you that show you everything we have in Butte County as well as out of county that if you have questions about are available. And then some of the projects we have under development, the housing projects, Everhart Village, which is the tiny homes in Chico. We we got some one-time funding. It's been approved. 
We've gone through the first phase uh, with regards to the actual site certification. Now we're doing the programming overview and we're expecting that breakdown in, in fall. Creekside Place is an older adult facility uh, in Chico near Marsh Junior High. That will be for older adults with severe mental illness. A portion of those beds will be dedicated for our population. Prospect Views in Oroville, we talked about that. And I'm pursuing a youth psychiatric health facility, or PUF, for our kids because we don't have one in Butte. Next uh, slide, please. <clears throat> this is one of the biggest, some of the biggest challenges to Bayhara Health on why, why we're not addressing homelessness. The most common question, why don't you just build more hospitals, take the homeless off the street, and force them into treatment? Well, they have rights, and the behavioral health services are primarily voluntary in nature. The people who are on the street who can't get off the street don't meet specific criteria that I can compel them into treatment for, mo for the most part. And as I mentioned, many are very heavily addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they're scared to death to get off those drugs. They want to they have a, an ability to get off the drugs and get into treatment, but the detox services that I've talked about that are at acute care hospitals are governed by the state. And the state has a very backwards, antiquated view of substance addiction. They require that someone is manifesting some horrible symptoms going through a withdrawal in order to qualify for the service. So there's a series of checkboxes that the hospital have to go through to say, well, are you experiencing this symptom, that symptom, and that symptom? Tell someone who's homeless, who's coming off something, to sit in an ER for six hours and develop the worst flu-like symptoms they've ever had to maybe be served, but most of the time denied because they don't hit a certain box. We've had homeless people who've gone into the ERs who have been daily users of meth, heroin, and they've been denied, not because of the ER's fault, but because of the actual approval process the state has in place. That is one area that the state should have zero limitations. If someone's going to come in and say, I want to be detoxed, you should have an open door, regardless of what they say, because that is the most vulnerable time where they need the most help. So the ones who do get through the acute care detox and get approved can step down and then get handed over to behavioral health, and we can pr provide the services. Oftentimes people aren't that severe and they can still come in for services, but they want help with withdrawal symptoms. So our substance use treatment has what they call MAT or medication-assisted therapy, which is Suboxone or Vivitrol or Methadone, some of the medications that you can take to help you with cravings, to help you with side effects, and then we also add antidepressants to help your brain recalibrate because after you've got off all those drugs that have been giving you those artificial highs, your, your brain chemistry tanks and you want to die, you feel terrible. So sometimes comorbidly, or com uh, treating them at the same time with an antidepressant or an antipsychotic while you take them off and giving them the medication for drugs is very helpful. I mentioned before lack of insight into their condition, anisognosia. Try telling some people they're mentally ill, they'll, they'll run the other way. Another big issue with the state um, that really crippled behavioral health systems was Prop 47 that passed in 2014. People who are arrested for drug crimes or property crimes used to have to come out as an early condition of uh, parole and go to court-ordered mental health or drug and alcohol treatment. We partnered with probation. We would follow them. If they, didn't, you know, if they, they recidivated or they, they used drugs again, they'd flash incarcerated. They'd have consequences. In 2014, the state said, you know what? We're going to make <coughs> drug treatment voluntary. Coming out of a jail, you can volunteer to do it or not. Well, what happened? Our caseloads plummeted. 90%. Most people said, see ya. They disappeared. They became homeless again and started using. I think that was a very poor decision. NIMBY is another issue. When I do get one-time funding to uh, establish housing projects, I get people coming out with pitchforks and, and, and uh, flame, you know, torches saying, not in my backyard. I don't want a mentally ill pro, you know, pro treatment provider anywhere near us. Put it out by the airport. Put it out there in the, you know, somewhere where no one else is. 
The reality is I've got mental health programming and housing throughout the county. Most people don't know where it's at, and it's just as stable as many other projects. People don't have those high-level you know, law enforcement calls, but people have perceptions. Everyone knows one mentally ill person who's done something extreme, and they have that lodged in their head, and that must mean all of the people we're serving are that way. Those are some of the comments we get, including comments that say, I know mentally ill people are all child molesters. My kid goes to school, and they have to walk by your facility. They're not. The, the majority of mentally ill people are not child molesters and are not violent. They're typically the victims of crime, not the ones perpetrating. There are exceptions. Uh, the lack of affordable housing, we know about that. The lack of low barrier access points is important too. You can't take someone who's on the street who's been using drugs every day to cope with their, their problems and say, you've got to get off the drugs before I'm going to serve you. They can't do it. They've got to go through what we call a harm reduction model, where their goal is to get off drugs. They're working with us in collaboration to try and reduce their use, but they're going to come home drunk sometimes. They're going to be high. They're going to test positive. We work with them. We know they, we know they, they stumble, and people through treatment all, typically always uh, relapse. So it's a couple times to relapse typically mm -hmm. before you get success. <laughs> so there's not enough of those. There's not enough inpatient beds because when the state closed them all in the 60s, they shut them down. They punished counties. They said, we know what you're going to do, counties. You're going to build new inpatient beds and just call them county-run facilities. So we're going to make sure you never build a facility over 16 beds, and if you do, we're going to punish you. You can build Medi-Cal for anyone in my puff who a 16-bed or over, but if I build a 17-bed or an 18 or a 32 or 64-bed, it's non-billable. It's all realignment funding. There's no Medi-Cal drawdown. So that's something that we're trying to change too, um, and there is some hope on the horizon with the governor's budget. LPS law. Um, that came along in the 60s when they let people out. It, it, it governs how we can take someone off the street and involuntarily hospitalize them. Danger to yourself, danger to others, or grave disability. When that law passed over 50 years ago, there was not a homeless population. They were not the type of people who just are out there today driving everyone crazy and saying, how do we get them in? LPS law has very strict criteria around grave disability. If I get hospitalized with grave disability, saying it says I can't feed or clothe myself or take care of myself in any way. Well, clients learn when they get hospitalized at least one time what the right language is to say to a psychiatrist or a judge. I don't care how psychotic I am. If I can remember, I'm going to go to the tourist shelter when I get out, and yeah, the Jesus Center has food, and um, yeah, I'll follow up with behavioral health services, I promise. That typically is the, the ticket to get you out of the hospital. And that's the frustrating part for counties because we know some of these people are just not going to do that. And we have to show sometimes through repeated failure after four, five, six hospitalizations, then we can become, uh, take it to another level where the judge goes, I know this person now. They've been in front of my court so many times. Let's go down the conservatorship route and take the rights away. But it's a, it's, it's a failure-based system, not a system that's proactive. HIPAA and 42 CFR are important. They're the laws that govern how we share information and with who. HIPAA is about mental health and health care. 42 CFR is about drug and alcohol services. Extremely difficult to share information with treatment providers under some circumstances. Great example. We partner with law enforcement, so we go out and we roll on crises together. I'll go out with law enforcement. My team will go out with law enforcement. They'll evaluate someone. They'll recognize, oh, I know this person. They were in the hospital last week. I can't tell law enforcement anything. I can't even say I recognize that person. Mm -hmm. I can't share any treatment information. Or if law enforcement says, how'd they do? You took them to the hospital. How, how are they feeling? I can't even acknowledge that. That's that kind of, those are the kind of barriers that exist today that make collaboration with partnering agencies very difficult. So, again, those are being looked at at a legislative level, too, at a state and federal level. But people are reluctant to change those laws um, 
due to prior, again, outdated thoughts that people who had addiction issues were unable to get jobs because people knew they had an addiction, things have progressed more where people have the ability to be hired who've previously been an addicts. There's no funding and reimbursement to support outreach activities, like I said. If you're out in the community and you're not open to behavioral services, none of our, our, our efforts are reimbursable. We're trying to change that. Cal-AIM is coming next year, and it might allow that to happen. I'll talk about that in a little bit. There's lack of in-person psychiatrists in Butte County. We're a health shortage area. We don't have enough psychiatrists. They've aged out of our system. They've left through the campfire. Um, so that creates us a system where we have to hire what they call locum tenens doctor companies. They bring in docs, and they, they, they find them. There's high turnover with those doctors. So one of the biggest complaints from our clients is, I just got to know my doctor, and three months later, he's moving on, and now there's a new doctor. It's really hard for me to share my story over and over again. So we, are, we have some options coming in the next slide to talk about that. And then the mission to solve homelessness, I just have to say, is very misleading. You will never solve homelessness. There is always going to be upstream people becoming homeless every day. It's how do you reduce the homeless population and how do you get more proactive upstream to try and address some of the adverse childhood experience issues, the drug addiction issues, and things like that. Did you have a question? I, I did. Thank you so much. In regards to the lack of in-person, and and so we're, we're going to like... To, now a hybrid system because of COVID, but um, are there any thoughts on, on Doc in the Box, that, that's which what we helps have, to the, mitigate the telemed that. doctors? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what we've done throughout COVID is was was telemed services over the screen. Mm -hmm. um, some clients love it. Some clients think it's very impersonal and they don't like it. They want to see someone in person. Okay. So we operate a hybrid model now where we're returning back to face-to-face -face services and we have telemed still. But you need to have a doc that's, really you need a doc ideally living in Butte County who knows the community, knows the places, knows when someone's talking about something somewhere. Um, I have docs from all over the country, sometimes other countries that, mm -hmm. what's Butte County? I've never been there. I've got someone in front of me, I'll serve them. That's not ideal. All right. Thank Next you. slide, please. Okay, so we're, we're almost done. Now we're getting some opportunities to do some things. Uh, opportunities to compel individuals uh, who are homeless and mentally ill or su uh, substance addicted on, uh, into treatment. I talked about hospitalizing them through LPS, dangerous self, dangerous others, or grave disability. We do hospitalize a number of people uh, a year. You saw the stats earlier that do get into treatment. A number of those people do get better and don't return to homeless living. We do have drug courts where we partner with uh, probation and serve people who are court-ordered due to them being charged with drug crimes in the treatment. And that's very successful for those people participating. We recently had a mental health diversion court that was put in place in the last year mm -hmm. that does that for <clears throat> someone's out in the community, commits a crime due to their mental illness. If there's a connection to their mental illness and the crime, they can be uh, court-ordered into treatment. For people who are considered incompetent to stand trial, they're so delusional or mentally ill or psychotic, they don't understand what the judge is, the jury, or the public defender. Mm -hmm. We can court order them into treatment to restore them to um, be able to be seen. Murphy conservatorships are for those violent, mentally ill clients. Those are the ones who are really serious, who we do not want on the streets. We put them in hospitals, and we tend to keep them there until we're really clear that they're no longer a risk. The LPS conservatorship with the public guardian is when we do get to finally conserve people. That's, we do serve a number of people. In fact, we fund two public guardians out of behavioral health money because we know they're underfunded. 
And then the AB109 program is a probation program for people who are nonviolent, non-sexual uh, um, offenders who are coming out that have to go through treatment through uh, probation, and we partner with them. Next slide, please. So there's state and local opportunities, and mm -hmm. then I'm almost done. Um, at the state level, we are pursuing, trying to get the LPS Act updated, trying to update HIPAA, trying to update 42 CFR to make them more user-friendly. CalAIM is coming next uh, spring, which is about Medi-Cal reform, which will actually allow you to be paid through the health plans for outreach and engagement services to people who are high risk, the ones we're talking about who we can't get paid for now. The state's finally acknowledging we should probably pay you to do that because it helps uh, proactively serve them. The state needs to provide funding to increase the number of public guardians. They're vastly underfunded in every county. They're overworked with too many, too high a caseloads. What they do is they do great work, but they've got too many people. So we need more funding for that. We have to advocate with legislative bodies to strengthen laws to compel treatment. You can't do housing first only. Building more housing is not going to solve the problem if you don't treat the addiction or the mental illness. We have too many people who get put in houses, and they destroy them. They tear them up. They bring their friends. They have parties. You've got to have treatment and housing uh, together. So you have to have a, a agreements for people willing to get the help. The state needs to also support building more treatment and dedicated flexible housing options specific for our population. Um, they're slowly coming along. The detox model I talked about has to be revised. It has to take away a lot of those barriers so more people can get into treatment. The governor has one line item right now in his budget. If it passes in May, I'll be thrilled. It's $750 million to support building inpatient beds and other housing options for the mentally ill. Mm -hmm. It's finally coming down. That's the good news. The bad news is there's only 10 projects that uh, Assemblyman Gallagher can put forth, and he represents more than 10 counties. We're trying to put forth that youth psychiatric health facility and in, to make it attractive to everyone, make it a regional youth path. So surrounding counties, who are also sending people all the way down south, can send people to our inpatient unit in, in, in Chico or in Butte. State also needs to increase funding to address the impact of street drugs. They've got to stop that drug pipeline. They've got to address the access issues, put more education into the schools. There are so many kids out there doing such high-level drugs right now. You know, legalization of cannabis has been controversial. Everyone's been focused on legalizing or not. They're not focusing on the potency of the THC. We got teenage kids taking uh, dabs and other types of cannabis that is so high level it's causing instant psychosis. We need to be able to educate people so they understand that. And then MHSA innovation funds that I talked about that have to go through the, through the OAC and get approval, we've got to take that out. Um, we are actually pursuing legislative reform with Assemblyman Gallagher, trying to have him put some bill forth to eliminate the requirements to take that to the state to make innovation funds something that you could do county by county based on what the county needs. And in our case, it's homeless. We want a, a homeless team. We should be able to use the funding to support that. Next slide, please. Local opportunities shift the focus from reduced blaming and increasing collaboration. City council, board of supervisors, social media, county, we all need to work together. we got to blend funding and, and work as a team. No one entity is responsible for curing or solving homelessness. We've got to reduce the silos countywide and build or lease buildings that have integrated services. Picture on, on, the, on the slide is the Butte County Community Services Center in Paradise, where myself, Director Boss, and Director um, York are, are, have staff all in the same building. So if someone comes in, they can see social services, behavioral health, drug and alcohol services, and public health. Then incentivize building more low-income housing options. 
and don't just focus on one type of housing for, for the homeless. Shelters are great for some, but not everyone. Some people want to be in their car, in a safe space uh, car camping. Some people want to be in a supervised campground. Some people want tiny homes. Some people want single residency occupancy units. You've got to have an array to, to have the most uh, options. And then at any given time right now in Butte County, there are 300 people with Section 8 vouchers that do not have a place to stay. Mm -hmm. There are landlords mm -hmm. that repeatedly discriminate against Section 8 um, people, and if you had more landlords that were uh, incentivized to take Section 8, you could get more people off the street. Laura's Law is coming down the pipe in the next two months. I came and presented here, I think, a year ago about it um, and a potential grant. Mm -hmm. It's going to the Board of Supervisors in the next two months. It's controversial. There's, I don't have time to get into the details, but uh, the county has to make a certain determination whether to opt in or out by uh, the end of June. We are pursuing a rural residency program to bring psychiatrists into Butte County to have third and fourth year psychiatrists do their practices here and the research shows that 50% of those rural residents tend to stay in the county that they practice in. And then the managed care team, uh, plans, Anthem, CHW, have to come to the table and also provide some outreach services. We have teams out there serving the homeless, they don't. And I'm looking forward to Cal Ames so that they start serving the mild to moderate so that they don't become severe and become uh, more addicted. Next slide, please. Collaboration is the key. I won't go into the details, but those are some of the programs that we partner with, uh, blend funding with, share staff, embed staff. And if you want to learn more about behavioral health, any of this has interested you, and you say, well, now I'm curious, what do you do and how do you do it? We have a behavioral health advisory board that meets every third Wednesday of the month. The Board of Soups frequently talks about behavioral health and what we do. The Mental Health Services Act uh, requires that we have a Mental Health Service Act steering committee that meets monthly and an annual community engagement monthly meeting. And we have a quality improvement committee. That, all these are open to the public uh, that talk about our services, who we serve, are we serving enough people, what our resources are. And there's a link that will get you there if you want to look at more information. And I think the last slide. If you or anyone you know is interested in getting services, learning more about our programs, has a question about how do I access this level of care or is in crisis in any way and needs to talk to someone, that's our access line. It's operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, staffed by clinicians, and it's uh, available if you have a need or a friend who needs to call. And that concludes my presentation. I'm sorry it was long. Um, any questions? Councilmember Smith. Yeah, I just wanted to share. Uh, it's refreshing to hear someone like yourself speak to some of these issues and question a lot of the way things have been done before. And um, and I think intuitively, most everyone in Oroville realizes that many of the homeless, uh, that it's above and beyond just because there's not enough housing. And so it's just refreshing to hear someone of your caliber to, you know, call in the question to pit count, somebody that's participated in the pit survey. You intuitively, you know that that information that data is skewed or flaw, has flaws in it and just uh, you know don taylor works for you um, uh, used to he works for uh desk now okay he, so but you know just in being in those coc meetings mm -hmm. you know a lot of emphasis is placed on you know it's just a housing problem mm -hmm. and it's it's just great to hear somebody of your caliber uh at the county level that knows the difference and that as we collaborate and, th and some of this information really needs to get and ha have this type of discussion with the coc as well because their primary focus it's how you know they have a 10-year plan right mm -hmm. and we're like year seven or eight uh, to end homelessness in butte county and it's all going to happen 
happen because we're going to have tiny houses and we're going to have all these things. And, and we just know, and we just know that's not where the problem. And so it's just, uh, I just appreciate uh, this presentation. I know it's late and we're all tired and all that, but it, it, I think it's just so important that someone of your caliber is calling it out, speaking to it, and, and then the collaborative piece and then getting everyone to start communicating and moving this thing down the line is so, so absolutely vital. So I just want to say thank you. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. And yes, if you look at Seattle and you look at San Francisco, the two most progressive people or places that are, that are solving homelessness, they're not. They're having more and more problems, but that was a housing-first model. Not faulting housing. Absolutely, we need more housing, but it's got to be with more resources. Councilmember Goodson. I just have to preface this by saying years ago, I recall working with you at the um, Behavior Health, um, and now uh, I'm honored to serve with you on this board, and I know that we have great things in store with a person such as, your, as yourself at the helm. Um, <clears throat> in regards to the mobile units that work with our uh, law enforcement agencies, so my question is, does that funding come solely through the county or is it a partnership with the cities and their um, uh, law enforcement department? So right now, the funding is primarily county funding. Um, we, we put up all the funding. There's some grant funding. There's some funding through our realignment and MHSA funding that we use to fund it. Mm -hmm. The Board of Supervisors just passed some campfire relief funds, one-time funds, to expand that mobile team to add another peer support specialist and a counselor so that we could have more uh, coverage. Because uh, we operate from 8 to 6.30, and we all know people go into crisis outside those hours. My goal, if I can pull it off, and in the future with CalAIM funding and other additional funding, is to make that team 24-7 countywide in all, right. all locations. But right now we don't receive outside funding. We were approached by uh, Chico State University about the possibility of um, adding some funding. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing back if they are interested because they have an issue on their campus. They need a mobile response to. But right now it's primarily counties, county funds. Thank you. And I just have one other question uh, in regards to the rural residency program. Is there an incentive to bring um, psychiatrists here to this area? An incentive? What yes. do you mean by that? Mo motivational incentive. Well, we're absolutely motivated to bring psychiatrists. <laughs> it's money. Um, my rural, the rural residency program that we're trying to do in partnership with, uh, it was the Butte Glen Medical Society, now it's Healthy Rural California, and we're trying to bring on some of the hospitals to partner with us as well as some other players. Is It's going to cost me about $1.1 million to get from now to accreditation, to get our, our, our system accredited okay. to be able to take residents. Mm -hmm. We, we got a grant to help us with that, and we were really excited. And then the grantors clarified the funding, which was, I'm not, we're not paying you any of the money until you get accredited. So we have to mm. front load all that money. So we're working with North Valley Community uh, Foundation mm -hmm. for, to secure some grant funding. I'm kicking in some funding. Um, okay. We're trying to get a couple other players to meet that $1.1 million mm -hmm. to get accredited. And then that would bring in up to four psychiatrist residents a year that would be practicing at behavioral health, potentially Enlo, potentially Orva Hospital, they, they have rounds and they provide, or our puff. And then hopefully after that, sticking with us. So we're, incentiv we're trying to incentivize that to get that off the ground. It's just, it's a, learning about a residency program and all the language about GMEs and accreditation and funding streams, it, it, it's a whole new language for me. So I'm still trying to get up to speed, and, but we're still moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Councilmember Pittman. 
Yeah, Scott, you're a huge advocate for your agency, and I compliment that because I've sat through this, this is the second time. Second time. I even learned a lot bit more this time. Um, and just to clarify, so you have a client, you're working with them, and they become a criminal of some type, and they go to the jail. Mm -hmm. Your client services go past the front door of the jail, or what happens to them? So that's another interesting um, little rabbit hole. When clients go to the jail, they're not the responsibility of the county any longer. They become the responsibility of the, of the sheriff and the jail. So uh, in the majority of the jails that I'm aware of, um, WellPath is the primary provider that is contracting for uh, both physical health and mental health services. And so we, we don't get to provide treatment or, or follow through, but we have um, dedicated a clinician who goes to the jail regularly and collaborates with WellPath and says, hey, this is one of our clients, this was the medication they were on, or this was the, this was the treatment plan they had, could you please make sure that they follow up? Or we'll sometimes come and, and assess people in the jail who are decompensating and need to be hospitalized, and we'll do a direct transfer into our inpatient unit, stabilize them, and bring them back to the jail. But as far as treatment in the jail, nothing uh, done by behavioral health. There also is a program down in Los Angeles County that they passed a, I believe it's a quarter cent sales tax to address the quote, the topic we're on, homelessness and whatnot. And there's, I think there is a number of different project areas that they identified that included cities and other things. I believe the money was generated about $350 million. It started about two years ago. Have you heard any success from that program at all? You hear program success in little pieces, but no one's dialed it in and got it right. I think everyone's got a little piece of it and is advocating for their different program. There's a CAHOOTS model mobile crisis response in San Francisco, and we have our version. And uh, I, ha I commend the different directors for the things they're trying to do, but no one has quite dialed it in and said, aha, we've got it. So we, so we can't really rely upon uh, someone else's guinea pig program mm -hmm. to apply mm -hmm. it to ours. Well, and I'm the behavioral health director, and of course, I want good treatment for my clients. And the last thing I want to do is lock up everyone. But the pendulum has swung so far from the 60s of locking everyone up to you have so many rights that I don't care what you're doing on the street. I can't get you off the street. Uh, one last example is in Los Angeles County, they, they put a lady on a 5150 who was homeless, ravingly psychotic, found eating a, uh, a rat, a not a live rat, but a dead rat. Mm hmm they hospitalized her, got her in front of a judge, and judge, well, she's, she says she's going to go to the, home, the shelter. She was eating something. It was nutritious, and she got discharged. Oh. That is the example of the chaos that exists and we have to operate with, and, and that's why I'm looking to the state, and now I'm, as I get more comfortable in my role, pursuing legislative options to try and correct some of these things because until we correct some of those things, mm -hmm. we're going to have to keep operating under these crazy laws. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Good presentation. Excellent. 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 Thank you. All right. Sounds Thank like you we need to more closely it. evaluate some of these judges. <laughs> well, there are patients' rights, and that's that pendulum swing. So people have rights to due process and to make sure that they, you know, we're, we're not just locking them up with no rights or restraining them with no rights. So it's a balance. It's tough. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for the water. Yes. Okay, moving on to uh, St. Thomas 8th grade students. I want to thank you guys for your patience. You've been great. It's, I know it's a long day. Good evening, members of the council. My name is uh, Mr. Logue. I'm a parent volunteer with St. Thomas School. Um, we've got our 8th grade uh, teacher, 7th and 8th grade teacher, and our 
selected students. Uh, we've got our student body president to do a presentation to you today. Uh, what brought us here tonight is uh, we want to do a community service project, and uh, we've discussed various options. I think we've come up with the right solution this time, and uh, we want to present that to you this evening. I assure you we will not be taking nearly as much time as our <laughs> previous uh, presentations, but uh, I will pass it on to our student body president. Good evening, city council members. My name is Diana Cisneros, and I am the student council president at St. Thomas the Apostle School here in Orville. With the encouragement of my teacher, Mrs. Knoth, and with direction from one of our outstanding parents, Mr. Logue, our 7th and 8th grade class has decided that we would like to do a small project to help beautify the community. We voted on several options and decided on the refreshing of the sign and the plant beds at the entrance of City Hall. We all like this idea of giving back and showing gratitude to the men and women of our city council. We hope that you will approve of our project, which we are calling the 8th Grade Crusade, a fitting title for us since we are the St. Thomas Crusaders. We are looking forward to giving back to the community that has given so much to us. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Thank you. Does anyone have any comments? I will say thank you very much. I, I really appreciate uh, not only youth getting involved in the community, but anyone. But but I'll I'll tell you what when the when the youth gets involved like that, it uh, it, it really just has something extra for me because um, I watched my kids be involved in in so many things, and it was it was so uplifting not only for them but for the community so thank you all of you and mr logue really thank you sir so a couple of just administrative questions uh the plants that we put out there these beds are all irrigated is that correct do we have a that's something you're gonna have to work with the parks and trees people on i'm Okay. Unaware it if it they appears are. as though they are. I mean, the, the plants are alive out there. The soil seems moist, so I, I think that we're probably in pretty good shape. We planned on refreshing the sign, as, uh, as noted in our presentation. Mm -hmm. It looks like the upright posts are rotten, so we're just going to dig those out and replace the posts and refresh um, Great. the awesome. sign. Thank you. And, Thank uh, you. Are you Some aware works. of what the city flower is? The city flower. I know the state flower, but I'm not familiar with the city flower. Maybe you can enlighten us. Uh, the azalea. The azalea. The azalea. It okay. is official city flower. City flower is azalea. So we can uh, certainly incorporate some azaleas into mm. our, our planting. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, if there are no further questions, um, we just kind of wanted a cursory approval before we yeah. began our project, which we plan on doing on the 1st of May. Great Perfect. Saturday. Great. So, thank you very much. Yes, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, item number four, 2020-2021 pavement rehabilitation projects presentation. You're welcome to stay. They've had enough. <laughs> 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 I 
Uh, yes, sir. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, good evening, uh, Mr. Mayor, dazed. members of the council. My goal is to keep my presentation even shorter than the Crusaders. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, so, um, just to let you know that well, we we're out of water, so <laughs> I may set my goal higher for after the meeting. So, um, as you may recall, back in October, you approved a contract for just under two million dollars for the 2020 paving project. We've just finished that up pretty much this week. Um, it was funded by a alphabet soup of state programs, the state regional surface transportation program, Transportation Development Act, Highway Users Tax Account, and the SB1 funding. As of uh, today, when I took my drive around, all the paving was done, all the access ramps that were intended to be improved were improved. There were some minor drainage upgrades we did. We added shoulder backing this year. All the manhole covers have been raised and all the striping and legends have been done and all the spelling is correct. Wow. Nice. <laughs> so um, to reiterate, it was Pomona Avenue from Feather River Boulevard to Fifth Avenue and Pomona from Beach to Pine Street, Washington Avenue up at Bird Street, Montgomery at Bird Street, Pine Oak Road from Oroville Dam Boulevard to Oak Avenue, Hilldale Avenue from Foothill Boulevard to Gravel Ridge, and Brookdale Avenue from Foothill to just at the Oak Hill Manor subdivision. Um, upcoming this next year, we're issued, I'm in the process of developing a task order for the 21 year, and I'm gonna try to roll in the 22 year at the same task order, try to get ahead of the, the um, development curve um, so this year, we're looking at Nelson at the southbound ramps for Route 70 and the northbound ramps. Um, that would be a reconstruct. We've had an ongoing problem at the southbound ramp that maintenance has tried to tackle a couple times. Um, we've had conversations with pavement consultants and contractors. We think that at some point the sub-base got contaminated, so it's going to take a significant amount of uh, work. Um, we're also looking at Ofer Road between Marysville, Baggett, and Kusil. Um Taking a little bit different philosophy this year, we're going to try to focus on a couple really important projects, and then again in 22, have a more encompassing, more ambitious program. The other thing we're going to try to do this year is add some activities that are, um, are important maintenance activities that we don't necessarily have the crew or the capacity to handle. Uh, one of them is some... Uh, embankment stabilization along Oriole Dam Boulevard and Ophir where the side slopes routinely slide into the travel way. Um, we're also going to try adding some striping contracts into this program to refresh a lot of our pavement markings mm -hmm. that um, take advantage of the economy of scale a contract can give you. Um, so that's 21. And then in 22, we're looking at possibly doing slurries downtown and some of the mark, no, parking lots. Mm -hmm. um, major reconstruction around the roundabout at Linden and Orange, Norton to the bridge, maybe even the roundabout itself. It's really in getting pretty bad shape. And if we can do that, Washington from the railroad bridge all the way out to Oradan Boulevard. So. That's our current thoughts on the paving program for the next two years. Any questions? Thank you. I don't have any. Thank you very much. Everything Thanks. looks very nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Okay, moving on to public communication. Hearing of non-agenda items. Madam Clerk, do we have anyone who wishes to speak? Mr. Mayor, non-agenda items. We have a few or five speakers. It looks like our first speaker is Al Seedler. Hello. My name is Al Seedler. Um, I've lived in this community. For I've lived in the South Side now for a year. My wife and I bought a house there, remodeled it, and uh, I will say this, that the South Side does have a great sense of community. There's pockets of families that have lived there for a long time, and there's mm -hmm. some pockets of areas that need some work. Um, like I said, I've lived there for a year, and I'd like, um, I know that statistics show that if we have police patrolling that area, that crime goes down. The only time the police are in the south side is when somebody calls them <laughs> or there's an ambulance with the fire truck that's the only time you see the police there um and just recently um i've seen a lot of the homelessness living now out on the streets um we all who live in the south side know where the problem houses are um and i know it's a community-based problem with the drugs and just the, the foot traffic and the homelessness. Um, but just recently on a couple of the streets around my house and on the others, Rosebend being one, uh, Fallbrook being another, the people have actually moved out onto the city streets and moved all their belongings out onto the streets. And um, I just wanted to bring that to, to the attention of the city council and maybe ask if we could possibly get some patrols out in the south side and see if that um, makes the crime rate go down or just the, the people walking up and down. Um, you know, I do know, I work in recovery. I'm uh, the director with Jordan Crossing Ministry, so I understand the, you know, substance abuse and the homelessness, and, um, you know, I advocate for any program that can help, uh, you know, uh, lessen those problems, but I know that living in that community over there that something needs to be done over there and so i just wanted to bring that to the attention of the council and see if anybody had any ideas and um to help solve the problem because i know it's not just one person's problem it's it's the community problem so that's all i have thank you our next speaker is bill spear mr mayor city council I come here to pray for y'all and it sounds like we need to pray for our state. <laughs> Father God, we thank you that, um, that you are always there, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for this afternoon um, as we address the issues and problems. And, and we do lift up our state. We lift up the, um, the legislators. We pray that you'd give them wisdom to address the issues and the problems. And um, we um, pray for CalPERS that they would make good investments and um, that you would give them supernatural wisdom. Lord, I thank you for Butte County Behavioral Health and, and the work that they're doing, and, and I pray um, that you would uh, help the community all to work together to enhance what they're doing. And, um, and uh, I thank you for that presentation for um, the gentleman that you have there um, leading the charge. Thank you for our... Um, the youth at St. Thomas, and they got the initiative, and I just pray that would happen with more people, more organizations. Pray for our youth, Lord, uh, all the youth groups and the Axiom and all the things that are already established. So get some momentum and some wind 
for their sales. Thank you for our city council here and for their long hours that they put in and pray that that same supernatural wisdom from heaven that you would open the doors that you would have open and and close the doors that, that you would have be closed. We pray for our, um, the new fire chief and the new police chief that, that you already have the person selected, that you would put the person in um, that you would have be there. We love you. We thank you for our, our community, for our city. We just pray your blessings to flow. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name. Our next speaker is Pamela McBride. with a problem that uh, is not uh, aware of in most people. Um, I was coming home from an exercise club um, from the lot home, and on the way I saw a woman who had come by earlier, and she was being kidnapped. She was a young, good-looking woman, well-dressed, and I don't know if she was a college student or uh, just a working young woman, but she had come by the lot house trying to get in, so obviously she was seeking refuge. And then after the class was over, I was driving home, and I saw her being abducted by four men. I didn't feel like jumping out of the car and doing anything, so I drove by them, parked my car, and called the police. I gave the dispatcher my name and phone number and never heard from him, not in a week. So I went to the police department and, and asked you know, to talk to somebody so I could give them a description tell them what happened. Nobody came. And so a week later, I tried again. And, and then I, I spoke to two officers at, the, at each of those times. One was Mr. Olive and one Minowski or something. But neither of them were the one who responded. So this lack of response to a report, just uh, uh, what would you think? It's like something on each of your consciences. How should the police respond to people making a report? And who cared about the woman? Mm. I don't know what her profession is. Even if she's a prostitute, doesn't she have a right to be protected? Or someone tried to investigate by listening to other people's stories? I'm not the only one. I was at a class, and they all saw her. Mm. That's, my, that's my complaint. The next speaker is Steve Christensen. Council staff and guests, I uh, I picked a city council meeting to make an announcement. I uh, I have a book released. I became Orville's newest author one day ago. My book's available uh, as an ebook on Amazon. And the reason I wanted to announce it at a city council meeting is because most of what I wrote about happened right here in this. The name of it, Municipal Larceny versus Steve the Barber. Fun read. (laughs) Our next speaker is Mike Brown. Council members, I'm here to thank you for the first-time homebuyer program. Uh, three generations of my family own seven homes in Orville, three across the river, four on this side of the river. But the one homeowner I'm most proud of is a stepdaughter who got her home about 
eight years ago through the city's first-time homebuyer program. It's made a tremendous difference for her and indeed for the whole extended family. We gather there often, and she's to a point now um, because her income is raised over time while her payment has stayed modest mm. that she's been able to put on a redwood deck, a concrete patio, and added uh, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. So thank you very much. You do good work. That keeps people off the streets. <laughs> thank you. Our last public speaker on non-agenda items is Bobby O'Reilly. Good afternoon, evening council. I guess it is evening now. Uh, good to see y'all, hear y'all making a, an appearance via Zoom as I wasn't able to make it due to other obligations. Anyhow, as I'm sure many have seen and heard uh, via news, social media, what have you, the NVHRC LMNOP program needle handout giveaway extravaganza uh, that blanketed Chico and uh, threatened to come to Oroville is now gaining movement forward uh, in Chico again under the guise of using a um, physician of some sort at their needle giveaways. I urge the council to be aware, be cognizant, um, and make any efforts necessary to do whatever we can as a city to keep this out of our city. Understanding that California has its laws, um, I get it. However, if there's anything that can be done by the city to keep this out of our city, I don't have to tell you guys this, um, as you guys were one of the first cities in Butte County to pass a, a needle ban, a needle program ban. Um, but I wanted to make sure that awareness was brought and please beg of you guys. I, as we all know, go through the parks, take my kids to the parks, I clean up the parks, I clean up our streets, and the number one thing you see repeatedly besides pennies is needles. And uh, it's becoming more and more and more needles that you see um, in these public areas. So please, with everything I have, I beg of you as a parent, as a citizen of this community, please do what you can to keep this out of our city. Thank you. Mr. Mayor, that was the last speaker on non-agenda items. Okay, looking for a motion to adopt the consent calendar. I yes. move that we adopt the consent calendar. I second. <clears throat> Motion carries with seven yeses and zero noes. Moving on to regular business, item number eight, amendment to agreement with ABC Nick's Pioneer Towing. Good evening, Mr. Mayor and Council. What you have before you tonight is a consideration of an amended agreement with Nick's ABC Pioneer Towing. Nick's ABC Pioneer Towing tows away our um, AVA vehicles, which is the vehicle abatement program for vehicles that are abandoned on the street and are a nuisance. The money for this program is a program through the county. We bill the county back and is reimbursed for this. The cost to um, dismantle and discard of travel trailers and motorhomes have increased. Therefore, it's necessary to increase the cost of this contract, the cost of the disposal of these um, particular vehicles. 
It is also necessary to extend this contract until the end of this calendar year so that we can continue this work. During the next uh, eight months, we will be preparing an RFP to put this out to extend the program after January of 2022. So what we're looking for this afternoon or this evening is approval to amend and extend the contract. Do we have any questions from the public on this item? Mr. Mayor, we have one public speaker, Bobby O'Reilly. Good evening once again, Council. Thank you. Um, my simple question is a question of curiosity as to was this uh, particular item put out for bid for other uh, companies who may have interest in the abatement program? Uh, I ask this because I do know of uh, a couple uh, business owners who have the means and ability to um, do this program and they have expressed interest in it and uh, have not seen anything put out to bid for this contract. Uh, so, thank you. Yeah, to answer the contract uh, question, yes, it was put out to bid. The bid was awarded in December of 2017. It was a three-year contract. We are uh, beyond that contract now. That's why we're extending it to allow more time to put this out again to bid. So uh, I would encourage everybody to um, pay attention, and we'll try to get it to everybody because this will be out there, and we do welcome everyone to bid. Thank you, Bill. Any questions or comments from the dais? Having none, looking for a motion to adopt resolution number 8935. I move that we adopt resolution number 8935. I'll second. Motion carries with seven yeses and zero noes. Moving on to item number nine, the appointment of two council members to the Butte Choice Energy Board of Directors. Good evening, Mayor and Council Members. Um, this evening, again, as you said, this is uh, to request the appointment of two Council Members to the Board of Directors for the Butte Choice Energy Board. The um, Butte Choice Energy JPA was formed in 2019 between Butte County and the City of Chico. In July of 2020, the City expressed interest adopt the JPA and ultimately joined uh, in November. And the city is now entitled to two regular director seats for that board uh, with the option of two alternates in addition. So at this point, we would like to request the council to appoint two uh, council members to be directors to that board and two alternates. Okay, do we have any comments from the public on this item? Mr. Mayor, I have not received any public comment on this item. Okay, does everyone on the council understand this item and are there any volunteers? You know, actually, I apologize. I did not receive that from um, the county. I will get that information for you. Uh, the first meeting would be held in June of 2021 and so in two months and that is where the um, board members would be sworn in but I will acquire that regular meeting schedule for you. I think that would be pretty pertinent because right. everyone here has got pretty busy schedules. So Yes, I apologize. That was an oversight on my part. That's okay. okay. Yeah. I do have so, an interest in it. It's just a time commitment. So. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not opposed to it. 
Okay. So we can bring it back for the next. We meeting. can bring it back again. Okay. I apologize for that All oversight. Right. Is that the consensus of this council? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Don. Mm -hmm. With a W. Item number ten: temporary appointment of a fire chief and salary for position, and discussion of Councilman Pittman's correspondence regarding fire service in Oroville. Good evening, Mr. Mayor and Council. What you have before you this evening is the consideration of the formal um, ratification of the movement that I made with uh, Chief Tins to act as the acting fire chief of the fire department and to uh, set a salary which would be appropriate for that. The salary is being set at the battalion chief level, top step plus 5% for the extra duties that are acquired. It is a process to uh, begin splitting the departments, um, the police and the fire department. The reason being is that the time when the departments were combined, it was due to a financial situation. We now, now have the financial wherewithal that that particular discipline deserves its own chief. Uh, the structure will be that I will remain as the interim public safety director and underneath me will be Mr. Tins as the fire chief. He will be solely responsible for the fire department answering to me. The reason why that exists in that manner is because the charter is very specific about it being a council appointment to be the full fire chief. That's why we're using the title acting fire chief. Um, the acting fire chief, he needs that title in order to truly lead the department and to establish a uh, chain of command. So what I'm looking for in this part of this item is just ratification of the appointment that I've made and the salary that I have presented to the council. And then after that, I will uh, yield the floor to Councilman Pittman to discuss his uh, item. Do we have any uh, <clears throat> comments from the public on this item? Mr. Mayor, I do not have any. Er, sorry, I apologize. Um, we do have one public speaker on this item, Mike Brown. Mr. Brown. Mr. Oh, okay. okay. All right. For the first part of this item, I... Uh, Apparently, we have no comments from the public. Uh, are there any comments from this dais? I would like to comment on this. Um, I think that this is uh, a big day. I, I really do. The, the disciplines uh, between the fire department and the police department are apples and oranges, and, uh, and they do you you and your team sir do do deserve a chief and i'm glad that we're in the position to be able to uh take the first steps to make that happen so congratulations and mr mayor if i could just to um, add on to that one thing that i did what was remiss in mentioning is that depending on the uh long-term council decisions if this is to become a permanent appointment this will be put back out for um application uh, there'll be an interview process and of course chief tens will be certainly uh asked and encouraged to apply for that but it, we will cast a wide net um should we go that direction absolutely absolutely and uh we're looking forward to that um so i'm looking for a motion to appoint uh chris tens to acting fire chief i'll make that motion i second Oh. Motion carries with seven yeses and zero noes. Congratulations. 
Okay, second part of the item, Councilmember Pittman uh, has a correspondence regarding fire service in Oroville. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, this, uh, I had originally presented the letter to be as an agenda item request, but the, the city administrator suggested we moved up to this particular agenda item, and I have no problem with that at all. Um, <clears throat> a couple things that are hammering our population in this community is the amount of home fire insurance cancellations and non-renewable activities. Uh, I'm probably going to say almost everyone in this room probably has someone or knows someone that had it. I had it my own self. Uh, the little letter of non-renewal and then the struggle to try to find fire insurance uh, was not any fun. In fact, it took me almost three months to get that squared away. So consequently, we as a city council have very little activity or ability to uh, tell the fire insurance companies what to do and what not to do. The only thing that we have is to possibly increase the insurance services office rating for our department. Uh, they rate us from a period of 1 to 10, and um, my letter talks about that process. Um, it's, uh, it's a process that they use. I will mention that it is voluntary on the insurance company's par participation, but it still speaks to the overall fire service level of service being provided in our community, and we currently have a rating of 3 and my interest here is to find out what it would cost for us to go to a class two. Uh, and that's simply all this really request is, is what would it cost for us to go to class two? Um, I have a number in my memo or my letter, I have a number of comments that have occurred over the past, uh, one being the um, presentation by uh, this council requested of Battalion Chief Isaac Reese uh, back earlier this year that asked about uh, department needs and I included that presentation in here. And one of the things you'll notice that over the years, um, the investment in the fire department has not increased with the population of the property or the population of this community. And um, I observed that when I started working for the city in 74, we had 7,000 population. We had 13 members of the fire department. Today we have probably close to 25,000 population and we only have 18 members of the fire department. So there's a definite uh, need for improvement there. So I'm kind of framing this around the idea that we would possibly go from a class three to a class two. Um, also, when you look at the averages, national per capita firefighters per thousand population uh, is right at 1.5 firefighters per thousand population. So doing the quick math, we're way, way behind way behind and I'm not suggesting we meet that standard I'm just saying that's a standard out there and it goes out there for the future investors that would come to our community because they do look at your fire service they look at your police service and at what level of service do you in fact provide um, also the um, property owner difficulties with fire insurance would hopefully be improved by changing the rating from a class three to a class two uh, when I was on the job, we actually were class four. So we've improved to some extent, but not, in fact, at certain times of the city, we were at class five and six. So uh, we have improved it. It's made it better, but we could make it better. And mostly I'm interested in what would it take to do that? 
um, as a reasonable idea. One suggestion or one example, I look at the city of Red Bluff Fire Department, uh, which is very similar to us. We're a little larger in population, but uh, they have a class two operation and they utilize a program called the Reserve Firefighters, which gets their manpower numbers up. Uh, maybe that's something for us to look at. Uh, we also have the five-year growth plan. Maybe there's elements in that plan that also could be, are probably maybe be costed out. I don't, I don't know for sure. I'm just, as a policymaker and someone that listens to the, the taxpayers of this community, um, <laughs> they want to have some assurance that our fire department will get a fire rating so that the fire insurance companies will write our policies. And that's just very uncomfortable. Um, and if not, just write our policies might throw back the idea of keep raising the premiums. I know many people that premiums went up really kind of unjustifiably. In fact, one person I know, they got a fire hydrant sitting in front of their house. And they said, well, we don't care about that. We just want to raise your premium. So that's really the issue that I'm looking at. Uh, what would it take? What would the cost factor be to raise us from a three or to improve our service level from a three to a two? Um, and I would ask both our city fire department and Cal Fire, who's in the process of uh, contract discussions, to both give us those numbers. I think it's reasonable for us in the community to know what that number would be. Um, that's essentially my request. Councilman Pittman, I will uh, task Chief Tins with his first task um, and tell him, <laughs> can you prepare that for us, please, uh, Chief Tins, and bring that back to us in a couple weeks? Thank you, sir. I would appreciate other councilmen to weigh in on it, though. I'm, I'm just one guy. I'd like to hear others. Councilmember Hadley. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you know, I am all for boosting up our fire department uh, as well as police, too. I mean, uh, in any other uh, department that we have in the city that we're low on people. However, <clears throat> and that's, that's really not the issue here for me, uh, but the people need to know uh, I talked to my insurance person, and the rating, the ISO rating, is not going to make any difference to you. And, and based on this, they, they take something that's called Pearl or Pearl based information tool. Every insurance company uses it. And what that does is they take a satellite imaging of an area, not just one house, but of an entire area, uh, and then they look at slope, fuel load, the access, whether the width of the road, whether they're paved or unpaved, how many ways in and out of the area. And what they're looking for is, are they going to, especially for the width, uh, is fire equipment going to be able to get in as the people are trying to get out? And that's what they're looking for. And so that's what... Um, basis whether you're going to get renewed or you're not or you're going to lose your insurance i mean now that's what i've been told by mm -hmm. somebody in the industry so what they're saying is you know make sure that that people understand that and people should go and ask their own insurance <laughs> company if if i live in this area what if i have a fire station right next door to me if you're in that area that they're not going to insure doesn't matter. That fire station can be there and they could squirt water out their front door on your house. 
It's not going to matter. If you're going to get canceled, it's because of the area, the whole geographic area that they're looking at for that specific site. So to me, I, you know, I don't want people to get confused or to think they're going to get something that they're not because it all depends on the satellite imaging, and that's how they do it. Um, and I, I encourage everyone, if, you're, if you have any doubt about this, because like I say, I, I just talked to my insurance man. And so what I'm telling you is you should contact your own and say, look, is this, how do you do this? If we go from a, a one or a, a 15 or whatever the ISO rating is, is it gonna make a difference or do you use this information tool that, that I was told about? So I just wanted to put that out there. I'm not arguing with anybody. I'm not saying anything's good or bad about anything. I'm just telling you what I was told to provide the information to the people. Thank you. Fair enough. Councilmember Smith. Yeah, I just want to concur with Councilman Hatley. Uh, owning multiple properties, dealing with insurance companies. I know that several years ago I had a property up in Lake Haven. And its proximity to Robinson Mill uh, CD, uh, Cal Fire Station was, an issue, was a, a benefit then. And then there was multiple fires. We all know the rest of the story. And as I understand it, those ISO numbers aren't quite so significant as much as, and again, my insurance company, just as uh, Councilman Hatley's already so eloquently stated, it, they look at those Google Maps and they make those evaluations. So I think fuel load reductions, quality streets, uh, egress, all those kinds of things, I think from a uh, perspective of a council and what we can do as a city, uh, and good planning, street planning, all of those things, I think probably moving forward are far more significant um, uh, in, in, I think, hel helping all of us. We all want to be insured, be insurable, and keep our insurance rates as low as, uh, as possible. And then uh, just as a curiosity, and, and not to get into the whole CAL FIRE uh, uh, discussion totally, but I kind of wondered, and I was looking at your letter, and, and it just kind of popped into my mind, since CAL FIRE does provide this service, they're the first, resp uh, first response in everything uh, north of Feather River, was were the, were the Cal Fire firefighter numbers calculated in these overall numbers for our city? When we think of a city of twenty thousand, well, we'll know soon enough when the when the new census numbers come in exactly where we are. Right now, it's just we're just kind of shooting from the hip a little bit. But I'm just curious. I mean, I don't know. It's just a question. Uh, w was the service that is currently being provided to the city by Cal Fire were their uh, um, employees? Uh, included in this mix. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yes or no? Uh, if I may, if I'm up, yeah. The ISO looks at how many people ride, arrive on the engine in terms of personnel. That's the big thing. Uh, Fifty percent of the rating. If you look at the numbers, I think I attached that. There's a points schedule. So whoever is coming and how many people are on that engine on arrival, that's a big deal. Uh, but. I also haven't been around the business for a while, so I would more be more inclined to hear what's going on currently with uh, the, that perspective. And then we don't have total access to ISO. The fire chiefs have that access to get all the details out. So I appreciate uh, Chris Tenz's comment. Thank you. And, and I just want to just preface also, we're, we're soon going to be hearing from um, the consultant. 
Mm-hmm. And so it'd be great. So this information and these questions, I'd really like to see our consultant tackle oh, uh, a lot idea. of this yeah. stuff so that we can, you know, kind of gr- get down into the numbers and really understand this. So we have, a, you know, quality information. You know, our, our yeah. decisions are only as good as the information upon which it's based. So I'd love to see that. Just quickly to, to answer your qu- your question, it, it is, and to truly explain how ISO works and the ratings and one being the best and 15 being the worst, there's a, a lot of different moving factors to that. But the the addition of the personnel from outside agencies is, and it's a separate part of the ISO, and it it's recognized through the auto aid agreements, so signed agreements um, is is how they will recognize that. Okay. So to answer your question, yeah. yes. Thank you. Mr. Brown, did you wish to speak? I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I recently got a non-renewal notice from AAA, um, and they explained that it had nothing to do with ISO. It had to do with my zip code. So I asked some probative questions and concluded they have too many eggs in the basket of our zip code, 95966, meaning they took on too much risk. They oversold. So they're going to take a time out. So I went to Travelers, got insurance, got great insurance. It was less than AAA. They'd been jacking me up, up, up. <laughs> Shop around. You ought to do it every year, but it's a pain, at least every three years. Ironically, I have a second home in eastern Plumas County where I shouldn't be allowed fire insurance. I can get it just fine from AAA. That's the last thing I'll keep from them. I even give them my card back. <laughs> now, the ISO is a great, great model for 1970s New Jersey. <laughs> they're still doing things the way they've always done them. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, artificial intelligence, analytics, computer modeling, been tracking the fires in California and throughout the West beyond the 100th meridian, where we live in the dry arid West. And it's understood that there's a problem with wildland fire. The light bulb finally went off back east, not an ISO. Mm-mm. But in many other places, the problem is fuel. The way to address it is fuel reduction. A lot of things you can do with roads and access, but they're even more challenging than fuel, fuel reduction. So the ISO, it might give you more confidence. It might let you compete with Red Bluff for some project if a body wants an ISO too. Mm-hmm. I can tell you why Gridley and Biggs got a three, because it was close. And Orville got a three. That was the only reason why. What did Gridley get out of it? A warehouse rented for a company that has since moved to Reno Mm -hmm. because it's cheaper to be a corporation in Nevada. Mm -hmm. It's just a very nebulous part of a whole puzzle that a business is going to look at. And it means little to any of you when you check into your own homeowner's insurance. When you get to a five or below, there's very few insurance companies that are even going to acknowledge a difference. And the reason is any one of your individual homes is just a bread and butter write-off to the insurance company. And what ISO, their PPC, PPC class, is most concerned about is a fire extending from this building beyond <laughs> its interior to the building next door. That's because they grew up in the East Coast And that's where most of the fire departments in America are. That's why we're staffed different, in part. Lower staffing than Boston and Philadelphia and New York and even small cities that are multi-story in the east. 
well, we're more spread out here and our fire problem is different. It's governed in part throughout a Mediterranean climate by the weather through much of the year. Mm-hmm. Here, the problem is fire extending not from inside a house to outside a house to the next house. It's fire extending into a town, through a neighborhood, into another zip code. And the light bulb has finally went off for the insurance industry. And not necessarily in California or even New York. It went off in Switzerland and Germany, where reinsurance comes from. When you can't buy insurance for your insurance company, you can't provide insurance in a place that's too risky. Insurance companies have gone under because of the campfire. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I'm the only firefighter that fought fire as a federal, state, and town paradise firefighter to keep the town from burning for decades. <laughs> we trained on it, Dave. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. It was used as a model statewide. Orville doesn't have as graphic a problem, but it has a problem. And as long as we ignore it, the problem worsens. It doesn't have anything to do with climate change. Problem's always been here. But we're not grazing cattle, mm-hmm. we're not raising horses, and we're not plowing the weeds and the brush out east of town where the city is annexed. So we've got a huge problem on the east side of town, and it's going to be a long time before the market resolves itself to provide insurance at an equitable way again. It will happen, but it won't be through ISO. ISO, you buy a little piece of a puzzle. You can put on a little more equipment. You can hire reserves or volunteers or interns, which sure a nebulous investment because you have to insure them. And as soon as they affect your pooled insurance risk with one on-the-job injury of an intern, um, you've lost any value in what was already a nebulous employee because they have to be literally supervised directly so be cautious about how you would staff out the fire department i encourage you wholeheartedly to add staff that may help the iso and if you still happen to retain a three and you're that close to a two yeah get it you know get out the box from the warehouse that you always put out every 10 years when the iso inspector comes and put that stuff on that you really don't use and you'll get two more points and you may get that but, but don't go after it. It's like going down a rabbit hole with your money unless you know what you're going to get out of it on the front end. Um, the reason there's ISO Class 1 is because there are cities like Sacramento and Stockton that have ports mm-hmm. and rail hubs. Your competition is not a city with ISO Class 1. It's a city with ISO Class 3. Your competition is Gridley. Your competition is Yuba City and Marysville. Mm-hmm. If we were closer to I-5, maybe Red Bluff. Mm-hmm. Um, ISO 2 used to be something for bragging rights. I think Chico Fire used to put it on their door. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. It's not anymore. It's, it's kind of, it's lived its life. So be cautious about how much money you'll invest into achieving that. Um, meanwhile, just shop for insurance. Um, and when you can, do whatever you can to reduce fuels on the east side of town because that will keep fire from coming into town. And if you want to see the proof and see what they're looking at it's not just the map of fuels um my stepdaughter with a first-time home buyer's home they cut down two oak trees got uh, farmers to renew their insurance triple <laughs> mm-hmm. a they said it's the whole zip code you're out <laughs> but if you look at the fire history map of the area that surrounds orville mm-hmm. you'll see the biggest area without fires is orville that doesn't mean there weren't fires here that just means we've been successful in putting them out under 300 acres mm-hmm. All the while, the fuel that didn't burn has grown and grown and grown, encroached over roads. People's junipers are up to their windows. 
a fire that starts on Kelly Ridge, I expect to burn into my neighborhood in the Brookdale area mm -hmm. on a north wind. Without the dam, we would have had a fire here already, uh, more than one. Mm -hmm. So consider your investment if you're going to try and pursue ISO, but consider it relative to reducing the fuel that might help you regain um, some control over the insurance market. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Mr. Mayor, we do have one other public speaker on this half of this item, Bobby O'Reilly. Okay. okay. Choosing invest in more goats. <laughs> yeah. Hand shape. <laughs> Thank you again, uh, Council. Um, appreciate the information. I just wanted to say thank you to council member Pittman uh, for the forward thinking, the out of the box thinking. Uh, it takes a village to conquer things that are happening with our community and it's going to take out of the box thinking uh, to help our community uh, as well as other communities uh, get to a point where we can actually feel secure again. As a homeowner, um, this insurance thing is absolutely stressful with the lack of fire insurance is available. So I thank uh, you, Councilman Pittman, as well as uh, all the others who are thinking outside the box and, and trying to think of solutions that may not be uh, uh, right in front of our face on ways to mitigate the situation. Thank you, have a good evening. Thank you. One last comment that I'll add that uh, one of the problems that for all, all of us to look at is August is the time when they look at non-renewals. It also is the time if you have any active fire incidents in this area or in your zip code, they will not write you a policy. Yeah. That happened to me. That's why mine took, there was the North Complex fire was still in place. Mm -hmm. Nobody would write me a policy for anything. So for all of you to be aware, if you have a renewals coming up in August, get ready for that process. The other thing I want to add is the city fire department has a weed abatement ordinance that's been very in place for decades, and it does exactly what Mr. Brown talks about. The weed abatement in, in the city's jurisdiction, you know, it all has a June 15th date coming up. We're going to be sending out letters if you already haven't. Uh, vegetation management is a huge product of this whole process, and you are correct. Thank you, sir. Okay, if there are no other comments or questions, moving on to reports, discussions, and correspondence. Council announcements and reports. Do any council members have any announcements or reports? Uh, council Member Smith. Yeah, it was a privilege. Uh, the chamber council had a privilege to have hosted the mayor's uh, annual 2020 state of the city speech and just wanted to uh, offer that thank you and then a thank you to councilwoman uh, goodson for filling in for me yesterday at the coc as i had a personal emergency to address and she's a good trooper and jumped right in there and uh, so uh, hopefully maybe she'll have something to share what came out of that meeting thank you uh you put me on the spot councilmember goodson so the the contingent Councilman uh, Smith is making reference to the Continuum of Care Committee. And um, it, it was a, 
a very interesting meeting, two-hour meeting to be exact. Um, but we did receive an update regarding the un unhoused in Butte County, some very interesting stats um, from the care homelessness response system that identified 1,760 homeless individuals in Butte County alone in 2020. Um, and that includes 495 families with children. Many of those are of minor status. And moving on, the committee also discussed how long to keep a patient-informed consent. It's a disclosure form, um, and it's open to pub, um, Butte County service providers. Ordinarily, the, the um, term limit is seven years. And a lot of us, there were a few of us that, that, that weighed in on that, and we explored the possibility of condensing that um, uh, that period and so we had a very healthy uh, discussion and it was mutually agreed that the form would be kept open to service providers on an individual client for no more than three years and then we'd, we would revisit that timeline um, after that term limit so thank you appreciate that anyone else uh, there is one item that Mr. Kenley mentioned on the housing issue. He mentioned that Section 8 vouchers are issued to people that can't get homes. Um, I happened to sit on the Housing Authority, and we had just approved a, an incentive program for landlords. If you will lease up a Section 8, I believe there's, I think it's $500 that will be forwarded to you, the tenant, for picking up that Section 8 mm. uh, client. So... It just got, was addressed at the last board meeting last week. So if someone's got rentals, please consider Section 8. It's a good program. All right. I'm going to use my time for a personal announcement. Um, I think every, just about everyone knows that um, my son is serving in the United States Navy, and he just finished his first deployment mm. and just finishing up. And... Uh, they took the ship out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to find the roughest water they could to test the off-spray aircrafts landing and taking off. <clears throat> and upon their return, he was coined. I don't know if anyone, anyone who's military knows what being coined is. He was, it's a, like a medal of honor that is given, um, when you're uh, for exceptional performance and and he was given a coin by the highest ranked um, enlisted man the senior master chief on the ship so very proud of my my whole family I my daughter courageously served my son is serving and and then we have one one more to go I don't know if she's gonna go that route but bless her heart so um, that's just what I want to use my time for. And I would like to thank Councilmember Smith uh, or the Chamber CEO for being uh, having the talent of a videography that he does because he uh, videoed the State of the City speech and put, uh, put in all these clips and hey, it's just amazing work, sir. And uh, I just uh, really appreciate your uh, range in in things that you are good at so thank you 
future agenda items. Anyone? Administration reports, Mr. Legron, Chief Legron. I have none, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Steve, no. <laughs> Ruth, nothing. Okay, municipal law, Larson, larceny. Um, Tom Lando. Thank you. Don with a W? Nothing? <laughs> Chief Tens? Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything must be running smoothly. Everything's running smoothly so far. <laughs> I get it. Mr. Attorney? Okay. Well, with that, we will adjourn till May 4th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Mm -hmm.